Did you say that you feel voluptuous? Yeah, that too. And yeah? I'm, I'm feeling very heard. You feel heard. Yes, you Good. hear me. You hear me hear loudly, you. so I'm feeling very heard. Good. As I'm sitting here signing my autograph on things. Mm-hmm. My John Hancock. Your Hancock? My <laughs> Your Hancock. My Hancock. Oh, I think I just figured out why nobody could hear themselves. Hang what? on, you're going to hear a Was little it? bit of adjustment here because it's about to get a whole lot louder. Was it not on? Oh, maybe it's not. Oh, the master volume is way down. Oh. Now it's up. Ay. So, here we are. Here we are. Here we are. Here we are doing stuff and things. Stuff and things. We're all voluptuous. We're all... We're voluminous. 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 Vo- voluminous. Vo- voluminous. V- uh, nope. Words. <laughs> Words and things are tough today. <laughs> Show tunes and whatnot. Because we're all kind of gay. Hey! 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 We did it. We did do it. Are we recording? Oh, yeah. yeah of course we are. Of yeah, course, course we are. Why wouldn't Why wouldn't we? I just sang a <laughs> shitty show tune. Of course we're recording. Well, I mean, I feel like that's not out of character, just in it's general. It's not super though. out of character, but, you know. Well, anyway, fuck, welcome. Who are you people? Welcome to Ghosts and Hoes. Ghosts and Hoes. Paranormal podcast where we talk about all things spoopy, yeah. cryptids, mm-hmm. aliens. Yeah. Motherfucking witchcraft. Yeah, sometimes. Murder most foul. Mostly all the time. Motherfucking aliens. Did I already say you that? You did. You well, did. Murder most fucking foul. I feel like you maybe said that too. Well, we, <laughs> fine. We talk about all the weird shit. Just. Just the blanket case. of weird shit. Just in case. And every now and then dicks. Sometimes. Sometimes dicks. Sometimes six. We haven't been here in so long. I know. We are coming back fresh as she yawns off of a two-week fucking hiatus. Was it two weeks? Mm-hmm. Oh, Jesus Christ almighty. They were out of town. Yeah. And uh, I had the Rona. He had the Rona. Did. His Rona went well. My Rona was fine. Yeah, good. Good I'm, on I'm, that. Get, get your fucking vaxes and boosters, you guys, because it... I'm I'm convinced if I didn't, I'd probably be dead. Uh, but it was like the easiest shit in the world to deal with because I had I like. Here's the thing: if you can't see me, which most of you can't, <laughs> I can. I'm a big dude, right? Which means I'm probably somewhere in the pre-diabetic range. Uh, very recently, former smoker, and um, I'm in my early 30s. So I do have things that if I was not vaccinated. Would have made that experience really fucking terrible. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I have been more sick so many other times than I was with with COVID. And uh, if I didn't have yeah, if I didn't have that shit all up in my up in my biz, it would have been a lot worse. Biz. <clears throat> do we have backhoes? Yes, I'm sure we do. Yes. And are we going to try to figure out? Have we found out who Randall ran into? No. Oh, that's right. Please let's bring this up. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to figure out how paper works. Please so, please continue. I'll tell the story here. Yeah. Um I was down in Costa Mesa, California, uh, for oh, I was in LA in Orange County for my birthday. And I went to go see a show at a bar called The Wayfarer in Costa Mesa. And fuck. Oh, I should have written down the band name. I'm gonna text my buddy right now and get the band name. Oh, yeah. Who did we see in Costa Mesa? So we went to go see a band. I'm going to get the name of the band in a minute. And I'm sitting there enjoying a burger, 
minding my own fucking business. No. <laughs> I'm not mad. It was a very sweet encounter. Um, and this lovely lady walks up to me and says, are you Randall? And I said, I am. And she went, oh, my God. I, and I might have misheard your name because it was music happening and I can't hear. <laughs> it sounded like she I thought she said Kaylee. But it may have actually been Paley, because I think she I think she pronounced it with a P, like Peter. And uh yeah, and she goes, Oh, I'm a huge fan of Ghosts and Hose. I'm a fan. And I was like, I love that. What? I love that so fucking much. <laughs> I, I wonder it. if it was your face or your voice that she recognized. It had to have been my face, because I wasn't talking. I wasn't yeah. on a mic or anything. I think she just recognized me from Instagram or something. But yeah, I'll face this way for the story. Mm-hmm. Um, Which means that she must be on our Instagram. She must be on our Instagram. Who are you? Who was it? Send us a message. Let us, let let us know. know. Take a video of me. Okay, hang on. I'm just sitting here signing my autograph. It's fine. <laughs> okay. We good? Yeah. Kaylee or Paley, <laughs> let us know who you are because you saw me in Costa Mesa and we want to shout you out properly. Yeah. Yes. Uh, hit us up on the squad page or via email or what have you. And we'll tag you in all the things. Thank you for saying hello. We love you. Thank you for being a fan. Yay. Yay. I'm going to do work now. Okay. <laughs> do work. But yeah, that was, that's cute. I love that. I do I love you. that. Uh, first, got to shout out some of our new and then upgraded patrons. Yeah, we got a lot of them over the past two weeks. Sure did. So we have... Taryn, Carlos, Julian, Abigail S, Kayla H, Shelly G, and Aoife. I hope I said that right. I'm pretty sure that's right. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey, buddies. Hi. I love that name. Hi, hi, hi. Buddies? Aoife. Oh, Aoife. Aoife. <laughs> yes, yes. I do, too. That's a cool name. It is. If you looked at it, you'd be like, "That's a, that is not how, you, that's not right. You're saying it wrong. I'm like, no. I'm not, though. I don't think. <laughs> I don't. It's maybe? A-O-I-F-E. Oh, Aoife. I think, yes. It's, yeah, right. Yes. It's a very popular Irish name. I was going to say, yeah. yeah it's, that that it's, looks Gaelic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many of these do I need to sign? All of them, please. Oh, good. <laughs> Great. Uh, also, if you hear, if you hear some little... Tipping, Some little tippy tap. This is a lot. Uh, I am working my day job a little bit because when you're out of the office for two weeks, uh, people really want to talk to you. Yeah. And I still have to make money. So yeah. also that I'm catching up and whatnot. Yep. So backhoes. Uh, that was that was one. Backhoes. I mean, yeah, they're not really super exciting. I went to Florida, and mm-hmm. um, that was Florida. It's, it's Florida. Florida. I saw the nope log. Yeah. The especially nope log. The Garyel. I saw another one of those, which I mentioned recently, and they're very, they're just as terrifying as I remembered. Uh, my nephew was not as into the alligator farm as I was. No, well, that's because no. he's wrong. No. He is wrong. He's See, wrong. at least he didn't try to jump in. No, Auntie had a real good grip on him when they were feeding the gators. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't trust my feral grandchild around an alligator farm. Absolutely not. So, absolutely not. Or but should you? No. But Ben was—he was good. He just wanted his little baby Cheeto puff things. Oh, I love those. They're really good. I mean, right? Yeah, it's I fucking mean, Cheeto. And also, uh, I believe that was the same day. It happened more than once. But he likes to share his food and um, took not even a bite. 
he just put it in his mouth and then just shoved it right into mine. I'm like, mmm, mm, yummy. Thanks, buddy. Uh, he had also gone through uh, most of the park as we were just wandering around, and he would pick up like the tiniest leaves and then go put them in the garbage can. That's adorable. <laughs> it was very cute. I'm like, but please, Benjamin, we do not have time for you to go pick up every leaf. <laughs> but you did get some of the big ones, so he's, he's cleaning Mother Earth up. Future park ranger, here we go. Uh, real quick, yes. Uh, Paley or Kaylee is the. <laughs> Uh, partner slash girlfriend slash whatever they prefer to refer to themselves as, uh, of the lead singer, I believe, of the band Kilo Bravo. Sure. K-I-L-O Bravo, traditional spelling. They are a dope fucking band. Go check them out. Noted. But uh, yeah, that's that's That was so random and so fucking cool. It was cool. And then she at one point was like, I'm kind of starstruck. And I'm like, fucking don't be. (laughs) (laughs) No, exactly. Wrong. You'd be like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you are. You're got dang right about that. I am sitting here wiping barbecue sauce off my face. I'm the last person you need to be starstruck by. I would. I feel like I would be especially starstruck by you if you were covered in barbecue sauce. Well, I mean, be like, wow. This I guy mean, knows how to get down on a barbecue burger. Yes, yes. And um, you know what, ladies, yeah, yeah. I do. <laughs> I, you know what, I believe it. Barbecue burgers are probably my fucking fave. They fucking should be. They're delicious. Yeah. Uh. Oh yeah. I, my suitcase. Got, ooh, oh yeah! Yeah, your got suitcase fucked got up. fucked up. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, Delta. That was neat of you. Um, it was only the second time I'd use that suitcase because I bought it at the end of 2019 for a trip, and then I went on that trip, and and then 2020 came, and I was like, "Oh, you want to go on another trip? Suck my dick." The dick of 2020. Oh, okay. So, yeah, that was only the second time I had used that suitcase. It went through, like, the first time I used it, many airports, many countries, many baggage handlers, and it only took one leg of a Delta (laughs) domestic flight for somebody to fuck it right up. It looks like it got jammed in the door or some shit. It looks like somebody drop kicked it out of the plane. I was like, how, how and why, what, why? They were like, oh, did you go talk to an agent? I'm like, it was after midnight. Number one, I'd been traveling for 13 hours. Number two, there was nobody there. Whew, done. Wow. Mm-hmm. All right. I did all I that. did all 75 at one time. What was 75? Yay. There, there's not now. Oh, there okay, were. Uh, but yeah, so that was, we'll wait and see what they said. Because they're like, oh yeah, submit a claim. I did. Uh, so we'll see. Work to the wise. Never travel with a hard case. I thought you were going to say something else. I didn't know where you're going with that. <laughs> what did you think I was going to say? The word hard came out, so my brain <laughs> automatically goes to Never dicks. Never travel with a hard dick. I was just My like, brain always goes to dicks. I don't know so. what's happening. I don't know. I've had too many issues with soft suitcases. Which, yeah. So no, I know. I feel like it doesn't matter because they're not getting paid enough to care. That's also fair. Yeah. So what's better, the soft suitcase or the hard suitcase? Well, the thing is, is that uh, hard cases are not malleable. So right? They, can't, they take the they dents can, and they show. They show dents and they can't. But they're choose. harder to stack. Right. But then the soft slipperier. one. The soft ones. Your can't, shit breaks. It can, but you also probably, I mean, if you're going to be putting fragile shit in your suitcase, you have to pack it correctly. Touche. 
Yeah, but also I feel like mm, maybe maybe don't. Maybe don't. Maybe, maybe don't. don't. Just fuck maybe up her suitcase. Oh, don't. well, I mean, baggage handlers are known for that. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. Maybe don't. Just maybe move away from that. Pay, pay, pay your baggage more. handlers more so they actually uh, All give of a shit. Everybody gotcha. that works everywhere, pay them more in general. Yep. Uh, I got a message from our listener, Clayton. Oh, yeah. Who was li- <laughs> listening to the uh, Satan's Letter episode. Oh, yeah. Mm. And uh, I don't know. I mean, if you, you are aware that he speaks Italian. Yes. And I do not. No. <laughs> that I didn't know. <laughs> he he, he made it very clear that in a very, very kind and friendly way that I was butchering the fuck out of some Italian. So there was that. There was that. Um, I have things. Oh, oh what God. What kind of things? Things that go in my mouth? Yeah. Oh, things and stuff. <laughs> things and stuff. Oh, we don't have to do them all. It oh, we can do them all, It buddy. looks like a lot of things. Well, we there's two. Every fucking one. These are for Goose, because she made a request. Oh, God. Oh, I just caught it. Oh, okay, it's got just it. from Bojangles. Yep. Um, and then this... Uh, Twix made salted caramel flavor. Fuck yes. I was well, like, I mean, how very it's good. How like, very dare you, Twix? How right? how very dare you? Because I know it's going to be good. Of course it is. Um, I kept seeing people talk about this. It's Coca-Cola Starlight. What the fuck does that even mean? I don't know. It's space flavored. Oh, I'll give it a shot. Space flavored. Yeah. Well, I uh, which I don't know what that means. So I was like, fucking let's try it. Uh, if you want to get some. There's a plastic... No, I put this on here because it was in my suitcase. Oh, it, you got it, it from came Florida. from Florida. Yeah, because I couldn't Florida. find it here before I left because right, I was right, going right. to get some, okay. but I couldn't find it. But then I did, and now I might need She an adult. sealed the oh, ever-living fuck I out did. of it. Well, it's just painter's tape. But Oh, that's easy to tear. Yeah, I'm just trying to get to it. My body is not really functioning right now because mm-hmm. it was it did a lot of things earlier. Uh-huh. I was literally moving boulders and I cut down a whole tree. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Some so, lovely ASMR. So uh-huh. my muscles are like no. Oh yeah, it is. Mm. Ooh, somebody's really into that. God, I love that. <laughs> Somebody, and it's Randall. Um, I'm not into ASMR, but I fucking love that sound. It's like, I also love the smell of gasoline. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I, we probably want to, like, do you want to get like a little cups or something? Oh, oh that's me. You're talking to me. Yes, the I host. Yes. yes. Is it like a lighter brown? Is it red? What is it? No, it looks normal. Does it? It looks redder. It smells here. the same. It looks redder. Am I high? Maybe. Okay. No, when you hold it up, it looks normal. It looks redder. And then okay. uh, these were, someone requested that we try these. And then my mom no. found them. Are they the taco ones? They are. God indeed. damn it. Who was that? I don't remember. Oh, fuck. I saw it in the squad page and I commented and I was like, absolutely. Nope. She bought two. So I figure one could be a prize for somebody for something. How, mom, mom, how, how, in Florida, that's why it's Florida. It, I mean, yeah. are they here? Can they be yeah. here? Yeah. They were, why? I think they're, uh, I think it was Walgreens. So they're candy corn that are taco flavored. They are jelly beans that are taco truck flavored. There's, but see, some of them don't sound terrible. There's horchata. Okay. Uh, churro. Okay. Margarita will probably be like green. Sprite flavored. Right. 
Uh, but then there's salsa, guacamole, and beef taco. <laughs> Nothing will ever be as disgusting as, as the turkey dinner candy corn. No, those were hateful. I hate candy corn in general, but I meant the uh, like the earthworm flavored jelly bean. Yeah, and I, the canned dog food. Uh, that fucking rotten tuna one was not great. I don't know if it was rotten tuna. I think it was just sardine. Whatever the fuck And then it there was, was a rotten disgusting. egg flavor. Yeah, it I was think it was sardine. Disgusting. Which, no thing. Well, you. it was real fishy and gross. Yeah. It was real fishy and gross. Yeah. That's what happens when you make sardine flavored jelly beans. Don't it's do that. It's unnecessary. Don't do that. Don't. Don't. It was tuna. No, I'm pretty sure it's sardine. Oh, gross. Either and way. And then... Disgusting. They were all... They were all bad. All bad. All bad. Fuck. Gross. Yep. Not a fan. I am... Oh, God. Somebody... Guys. Oh, it is more. It is red, damn it. It looks the same to me until I pour it. It looks exactly the same as regular Coke. It smells like regular Coke. Exactly. And I don't like it. But it's apparently got a different flavor. And what that flavor is, I don't know. All right, well, I'm about to tell you. This shit's red, number one. fucking space. It's red. Space. Space. Which I don't know what that means. Coca-Cola. Oh. Did you go for it without cheersing? Rude. Rude. Cheers, bitches. Cheers. Hmm. It's like cherry Coke. That tastes like nothing. It kind of tastes like. Uh, do you have your taste of taste back? Yeah, no, my taste is here. <laughs> it's okay. like a. It's like I a, never watched that. That was the weird thing. Yeah, it was good. It depends on which variant you had, because I think it was Omicron. You didn't lose those. It tastes like cream soda, but also yeah. strawberry vanilla Starburst. Kinda, it tastes like a weak Dr Pepper. It's yeah. like somebody dropped some strawberry Starburst into a cream soda. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. It's fine. <clears throat> cool. And then, and then fine. Think, Taco truck, give me this jelly beans time. Gross. <sighs> it's not the worst thing give either of us have had in our mouths. That so. is so true, madam. That is so I need you true. to chill and remember there have been far worse things in our mouths. Mm. <laughs> I can name one right now. Touche, ma'am. How does it smell? Like jelly beans. Jelly beans. I right. smell the churro one, I think, the most. All right. Okay, I have to oh. look and see. Cause... You get yours? Uh-uh. Jelly beans? Still no, okay. no, I'm still, still opening it because remember, my muscles don't work right now. Give a little bit and we'll go. Hang on. Gonna... Are you going to try to sort them out? A little bit. A little Why bit. are they so big? I... Giggity. That one. The, 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 ooh. That one's real big. It's like blueberry size. Blueberry. Oh, blueberry. Too, too many. Oh. Uh, just go handful, because they're all looking the same at this juncture. They are. I gotta. There's a lot of green ones in here. Exactly. So just. I don't think you're gonna be able to sort them out, dude. I dropped one and I don't know where it went. Ah. <gasps> Ooh. Wow. Oh, I don't like the look wow. of that. I don't like the look of that one at all. That was from the Coke. Okay. The well, cola. The, the cola. The cola. All right, here. Are we doing it? I'm trying. She's just giving random handfuls. There's no way to tell at this juncture. Okay. I'm going to make sure. Oh, I went off my protector. God damn it. Son of a... Hang on. 
There's one that I'm trying to grab specifically. No, no, take your time. It's my show. I do what I want. <laughs> I feel like all those super gross ones are hiding at the bottom. Yeah. This one might be soft. Oh, your genie's looking good. Right? Thank you. That's, that's fully healed at this point, is it not? Yeah. Oh, yeah, mine's all done, too. Yeah. All right, well. My next one is uh, next week. Let's see what happens, because I don't know what the difference is. Let's do the white one. White? Okay. <laughs> Everybody have a white one? I think it's horchata. Okay, I have a white one. Okay. Oh, it's not bad. No? I think this is the white one. It's definitely horchata. Yeah. Horchata. Mm-hmm. Horchata. Don't pronounce the H. Horchata. I said what I said. Well, you said it wrong. I do not care right now. Okay. Uh, now what? Oh, there's a red one I didn't get. This, the light green one with no spots on it. I can't tell if there's spots or not. It does have spots. It's light green. Margarita. Yep. Oh, yeah. Gross. It definitely tastes like Pledge. Yeah. Um, I don't know what this one is supposed Shall to be. Shall we go for guacamole? What is it? I think it's green. Is it the one with the spots? I don't have that one. All right. Yeah. I'm going to go spots then. Fuck, that's gross. That, oh. I don't know that I tasted anything. Oh, it's horrible. What is it? I don't know what's in my mouth right now, but I do not like it. It's horrible. I think I had... <laughs> I think that's guacamole. <laughs> but there's no spots on it. Oh, that's gross. Okay, well. I don't know what that was, but I do know that it tasted like absolute evil. There's a yellow one, too, that I have. There's, It's not on the bag. Yeah, I know. They're they're, they're all, all just... right. What's this brown green what? one? <laughs> oh, oh god! What oh, what, what? Oh god! <laughs> this one is either churro or beef taco, oh, and I'm so scared. bad. So, what the... color was it? Like a yellow, like the orangey yellow. Mm-hmm. That's salsa. All right, here I go. Maybe no, I don't know anymore. Okay, this I don't know what this is. <laughs> okay, I don't mind the salsa one. I don't know what this is. This also one didn't bother me that much. That might have been beef taco, too. I, I don't, don't know. I don't know what that one was. No, I'm done. These I tasted gross. like... It's over. It's over for me. Wood. Salsa? Do we have to do the brown one now? I imagine the churro one's probably good. Oh, the salsa one isn't the salsa bad. Not Which bad. one's salsa? Is that the orange one? Yeah. No, it's like the orange It's not great. Spot. It's not bad. No, these are terrible. They, who did this and why? You hate me. I'm done. Sure, one's disgusting. good. I only. I don't think I had that one. I'm done. Yeah, sure I think solid. I had the, um, the taco one, and that was the, the yellow. One. What the fuck was the yellow one? Mm-hmm. The weird, like like booger colored yellow one. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's beef taco for some reason. That was disgusting. Yeah, it's either beef taco or guacamole. Not sure. Either way, not into it. Either way, no. The orange one is disgusting. I didn't have a yellow one. Absolutely. Where's the green spotty guy? Oh, there's the green spotty guy. Okay. (laughs) I see spots. Gross. And? Not sure? We must have had the beef taco one. The guacamole just kind of tastes like 
cilantro. I was just gonna say it's real mm. cilantro. It's just really, really light hint of cilantro. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's one of the ones I just had that I didn't taste like anything. Oh, what's the orange one? It's gross. Orange? Yeah, there's like I a had... straight up orange one. It I had might the orange be one and it's disgusting. The salsa one without spots on it for some reason. I took one bite and I spit her out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's salsa. I think that's yeah. So either either salsa or beef taco is terrible. Blech. They're horrible. But I think it's beef taco because the salsa one's not that bad. Yeah, no, I am good. I think they you. just hide the beef taco ones in other colors. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's a trick. Yeah, because it was like straight up yellow. Yeah, it looked like a the booger color yeah. jelly beans. It's disgusting. Okay, well now we have Where's a treat other, that's not. Who goes first today? By the way. I do? Well, then I should probably get going, because mine is really long. Here. Oh, yes. Oh, I'm way into this. Yeah, And now is a reward, Twix. Delightful. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, please. That's pretty tasty. I'm not going to lie. I'm a fan of Twix anyway. Uh-huh. Like the peanut butter ones and mm-hmm. all of them. That's really good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hold on. It almost tastes like a hundred grand without the crunchy parts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So. Ten out of ten. Zero out of ten on the taco truck jelly beans. Who, yeah, fuck those. Who recommended these? Someone in the squad page, and I can't remember. You You're know, You know who out. you are. I was going to do it anyway. You know what you've done. But then they recommended it, and I'm like, You're well, now I have out. to find it. <laughs> you can't listen anymore. You know I would have done it anyway. So, Ooh. Z, had it, we were having a conversation a couple weeks ago, the normal conversation, what do you have? What do you have? And I said I had a serial killer, which I do. And she was asking me some questions just to make sure, because she obviously had one too. And I was like, nah, yep. dude. <clears throat> I can't do it. Like I, I, like I can't even give you a fucking modicum of a clue because the second I start talking, you're gonna know exactly what I'm doing. So, for those of you that have been listening to this show from day one, you have probably been waiting patiently, hmm. or not. <laughs> or do you not. already know what it is? <laughs> of she does. Pretty sure. <laughs> Or not so patiently for me to do this story. And it was going to be me. Always me. And today is that day. Oh, I think I know too. So, picture it, y'all. New Orleans. Oh, never mind. May 1918. The first war had just ended and the sultry sounds of jazz music was just taking off. I finally give unto you all the Axeman of New Orleans. Yep. So, the Axeman was and was and is a still an unidentified serial killer active in New Orleans, Louisiana, and vicinity, reportedly from May 1918 to October 1919, although some speculated his span of crimes began in 1910 or 11, while some were convinced it went from 1915 to 17 to 20. It's kind of all over the board. But the first attack attributed to the Axeman took place on the night of May 22nd, 1918. The bulk of the Axeman's 12 victims, three of whom did survive, were Italian immigrants, which led many to believe that the murders were ethnically motivated. Multiple media outlets of the day sensationalized that viewpoint, even hinting of mafia involvement. 
Crime analysts have proposed that the motivation for the crimes were actually sexual and that the murderer was potentially a sadist. And the pattern suggests that he or she were seeking exclusively female targets and that the men may have been murdered just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Another theory suggests that the Axeman perpetrated the crimes in a bizarre effort to make jazz music more popular. This theory was due to um, a note allegedly written by the Axeman in which he said he would not slaughter anyone who played jazz in their home. I will get there. So the first victims of the Axeman were Italian grocer Joseph Maggio and his wife Catherine, who were found murdered in their home on the corner of Upperland and Magnolia Streets, where they had a bar room and grocery on May 23, 1918. The killer broke into the home. Well, they were found May 23rd, but they thought that they were killed on the 22nd, you know. So the killer broke into the home as the couple were sleeping, and he slit both of their throats with a straight razor, then proceeded to bash their heads in with an axe that he had found in their home. Joseph died minutes after... And go back. (laughs) Joseph died minutes after he and his wife were discovered by his brothers, Jake and Andrew Maggio. And Catherine was already dead. Her throat was cut so deeply that her head was nearly severed from her shoulders. Police discovered the bloody clothes of the murderer in the house, meaning that he changed his clothes before he took off. The police ruled out robbery as the motivation for the attacks due to the fact that money and valuables were still just sitting there in plain sight. Nothing was taken. Turns out, though, that the razor used to kill the couple was found to belong to Andrew Maggio, who owned a barber shop on Camp Street. His employee, Esteban Torres, told the police that Maggio had taken the razor from the shop a couple days prior to the murder, saying that he was going to have a nick shaved out of the, or sharpened out of the blade. Andrew, who lived in the adjoining apartment to his brother's residence, discovered his brother and sister-in-law roughly two hours after the attacks had occurred, and he had heard a strange groaning sound coming through the walls. Maggio blamed his failure to hear any noise related to the attacks uh, on his intoxicated state, and he had returned home late after a night of partying before he was leaving to join the Navy. The police, however, were nonetheless surprised that he failed to hear the intruder as he made a forced entry into the home. Andrew Maggio became the police's prime suspect in the crime, but was eventually released. He did tell the authorities that he had seen an unknown man lurking near the Maggio home prior to the murders. A few blocks from the murder scene, policemen found a cryptic message chalked into the sidewalk, and it said, Mrs. Maggio is going to sit up tonight just like Mrs. Tony." Now, that was interpreted as a reference to the alleged, alleged, alleged attack of another couple of Italian grocers back in 1911, in June of 1911, Anthony and Johanna Chiambria. And um, she was, her nickname was Mrs. Tony because her husband was Tony. So the next attack was on June 27th. Louis Basumer and his mistress, Harriet Lowe, were attacked in the early mornings, morning, wow, words, the early morning hours of June 27th, 1918, while asleep in bed in the apartment in the back of the grocery store, which was located on the corner of Dorgenois and La Harpe Streets. Basumer was hit with a hatchet above his right temple, fracturing his skull, denting his brain. 
Lowe was hacked over the left ear and found unconscious when the police arrived at the scene. The couple was discovered shortly after 7 a.m. on the morning of the attack by John Zonka, a driver of a bakery wagon who had come to the grocery to make his routine delivery. Zonka found both Basumer and Lowe in a puddle of their own blood, um, both bleeding from their heads. The axe, which had belonged to Basumer himself, was found in the bathroom of the apartment. Basumer later stated to police that he had been sleeping when he was bashed in the head with a hatchet. Mind you, he's not dead. He just has a dented fucking brain. So almost Yikes. immediately, the police arrested potential suspect Louis Wubacon. Oh, fuck. Mm. Mm. French. Obacon. Obachon? Obacon. Wubacon? O-U-B-I-C-O-N. Wubacon? We? We? Wubacon? Right? A then 41-year-old African-American man who had been employed in Basumer's store just a week before the attacks. No evidence existed, which could have tied Lewis to the crime, but the police arrested him nonetheless, stating that he had offered conflicting accounts of his whereabouts on the morning of the attack. Shortly after the attempted... Hold on. Pages are stuck. It's an, it's an attempted something. I thought you moved your mic for a second. No, I wrote this two weeks ago. Hold on. The attempted murder. I mean, I assumed... Harriet stated that she remembered having been attacked by a mulatto man, yet her statement was discounted by the police due to her disillusioned state. So robbery was said to be the only possible explanation for the attacks, yet, like with the Maggio murders, no money or valuables were removed from the home. Please recognize that as a turn from the time. Yes. We do not use that word anymore. No. I am going from the statements of the witnesses. (laughs) Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And that's going to happen a lot in this story. I'm just going to preface that now and get it out of the way. So, um, there we go. Let's see. Wobacon was later released as the police were unable to gather sufficient evidence to hold him or charge him. Media attention soon soon turned to Basumer himself as a series of letters written in German, Russian, and Yiddish were discovered in a trunk in his home. The police suspected that Basumer was actually a German spy, and government officials began a full investigation of his potential espionage. Mind you, this was at, right after yeah, World right after War I. War. <clears throat> so, weeks later, after going in and out of consciousness, Harriet told the police that she thought Basumer was, in fact, yes, a German spy, which led to his immediate arrest. Two days later, Basumer was released, and... Two lead investigators of the case were demoted due to unacceptable police work. They were like, yeah, she has like a really severe head injury and he has a dented brain. So maybe neither one of them are really good witnesses at this point. Grain of salt here. So um, Harriet became the center of a media circus as she continually made scandalous and false statements relating to both the attacks and the character of Louis Basumer, you know, the whole German spy thing. So the Times-Picayune sensationalized Lowe when they found out that she was not the wife of Basumer, but in fact his mistress. A charity hospital source discovered the scandal when Basumer asked to be directed to the room of Mrs. Harriet Lowe and was denied access because no woman of that name was a patient. So... Basumer's legal wife arrived from Cincinnati in the days immediately following, you know, the attacks, which, of course, inflamed the drama and 
the scandal in the papers. Harriet further gained media attention as she repeatedly made statements which voiced her dislike of the New Orleans chief of police as well as her reluctance to comply with police questioning. After the truth of her marital status was revealed publicly, Lowe told reporters from the Times-Picayune that she would no longer aid the police in their investigation, and she suspected that it had been Chief Mooney who informed the press of the whole scandal in the first place. So, despite all of this and her delirious... What? (laughs) Deliriousness. Lowe returned to the home she shared with Basumer weeks after the attack. So... One side of her face was partially paralyzed due to the severity of the attack, and she actually ended up dying on August 5th, 1918, just two days after doctors performed a surgery in an effort to repair her partially paralyzed face. So just prior to her death, Lowe told the authorities that she suspected that it was Louis Basumer who had attacked, who had attacked her with his hatchet, and Basumer was once again arrested in August of 1918. He was charged with murder, and he served nine months in prison before being acquitted on May 1st, 1919, after a 10-minute jury deliberation. So the next attack took place on August 5th, 1918. A young woman named Anna Schneider was attacked at her home on Elmira Street. She was eight months pregnant, 28 years old. She woke up to find a dark figure standing over her, and she was bashed in the face repeatedly. Her scalp had been cut open, and her face was completely covered in blood. Fortunately, Anna was found alive, although bloody, by her husband, Ed, who had gotten home after midnight. Schneider said that she remembered nothing of the attack and gave birth to a healthy baby girl two days after. Oof. Her husband told police that nothing was stolen from the home besides six or seven dollars that had been in his wallet. The windows and doors of the apartment appeared not to have been forced open, and authorities came to the conclusion that her attacker entered through an unlocked window and that Anna had been attacked with a lamp that had been on a nearby table. James Gleason, who police said was an ex-convict, was arrested shortly after Schneider was found. Gleason was later released due to a complete lack of evidence and stated that he originally ran from the authorities because he had been arrested so many damn times. So lead investigators began to publicly speculate that the attack was related to the previous incidents involving Basumer and Maggio. So they're starting to tie all of these attacks together. We will get there, though. Yes. On August 10th, 1918, sisters Pauline and Mary Bruno were woken up by the sound of a commotion in the adjoining room in their home where their elderly uncle Joseph Romano lived. They went into the room. The sisters found their uncle in bed and bloody, having taken a blow to the head, which resulted in two large open cuts. The assailant was seen fleeing from the scene as they arrived, and the girls were able to see that he was a dark-skinned, heavy-set man who wore a dark suit and a slouched hat. Romano, although seriously injured, was able to walk to the ambulance when it got there, but unfortunately he died two days later due to severe head trauma. The home had been ransacked, but nothing had been stolen, and authorities found a bloody axe in the backyard and discovered that a panel on the back door had been chiseled away. So, I'm going to stop here. And it's they're going to find as in the murders previously, that that was something that they all somehow overlooked. Like, so, you know, old doors, how they have like panels in them, right? Mm -hmm. So somebody was essentially took one panel out of a door. Now, these are really small. Yeah. When you look at a door panel on an antique door, they're not big. No. Right. But that's how this person was getting in. Hmm. 
Right. <clears throat> so the Romano murder created a state of extreme chaos in the city with the residents living in constant fear of an Axeman attack. Police received a shit ton of reports in which citizens claimed to have seen an Axeman lurking in New Orleans neighborhoods. A few men even got called to report that called to report that they had found axes in their backyard. John D'Antonio, a then-retired Italian detective, made public statements in which he hypothesized that the man who had committed the Axeman murders was the same who had killed several individuals back in 1911, Mrs. Tony. Mm-hmm. The retired detective cited similarities in the manner by which the two sets of homicides had been committed and reason to assume that they had been conducted by the same individual. D'Antonio described the potential killer as an individual of dual personalities who killed without motive. This type of individual, D'Antonio stated, could very likely have been a normal law-abiding citizen who was often overcome by an overwhelming desire to kill. He later went on to describe the killer as a real-life Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and New Orleans Superintendent of Police Frank Mooney suspected that the murderer was a murderous degenerate who gloats over blood. The next victims were the Cortemilia family. Charles, an Italian immigrant, lived with his wife Rosie and their two-year-old daughter Mary on the corner of Jefferson Avenue and 2nd Street, this time in Gretna, which is a New Orleans suburb which is right across the Mississippi River. So on the night of March 10, 1919, screams were heard coming from the Cortemilia residence. Neighbor and fellow grocer Lorlando Giordano booked it across the street ran over to see what the hell was going on. When he got there, Giordano noticed that Charles, his wife, and their daughter had all been attacked in bed while they slept. Rosie stood in the doorway with a serious head wound, clutching little Mary, who was dead. Aww. Charles laying on the floor, bleeding profusely from the head. The couple was rushed to Charity Hospital, where it was discovered that both had suffered skull fractures. Nothing was stolen from the house, but a panel on the back door had been chiseled away, and a bloody axe was found on the back porch of the home. Charles was released two days later while his wife remained in the care of the doctors. After regaining full consciousness, Rosie made claims that Lorlando Giordano and his 18-year-old son Frank were responsible for the attacks. Lorlando, however, was a 69-year-old man and was considered in too poor of health to have committed the crimes, and Frank Giordano, who was more than six feet tall, weighing over 200 pounds, would have been too large to have fit through the panel in the back door. Now, while Superintendent Mooney back in New Orleans believed that all these murders were the work of a degenerate, the Gretna authorities, including Police Chief Peter Lesson and Sheriff Luis Marrero, wanted no part of the New Orleans serial killer. So they were convinced that it was the neighbors, yeah, Lorlando and Frank Giordano, which would have been a neat and easy case, except there was absolutely no fucking evidence. It's like, oh, they're just there. Right. So the officials handled this small inconvenience by convincing Rosie as she lay in the hospital that uh, by saying that it was the Giordanos saying, who hit you? Was it the Giordanos? Frank did it, didn't he? Mm. And according to the doctor who treated her, Rosie always said that she didn't know who had attacked her. And when she was well enough to be released, Sheriff Marrero immediately arrested Rosie herself as a material witness and incarcerated her in the Gretna jail. So she was re- sorry. Well, she was going to be released only after she signed an affidavit implicating her neighbors. We love that. So Charles 
vehemently denied his wife's claims, yet the police nonetheless arrested the two men and charged them with the murder. The men would later be found guilty, Frank was sentenced to hang, and his father was sentenced to life in prison. Charles Cortemilla divorced his wife after the trial. Nine months later, Rosie walked into the newspaper office at the Times-Picayune and retracted her testimony. She said that St. Joseph had come to her in a dream and told her that she had to tell the truth. Okay. Rosie signed another affidavit, this time declaring that she had not seen her attackers and had been pressured into identifying the Giordanos. Mm. Despite Rosie's retraction, the prosecution didn't immediately give up, and at one point, Rosie was threatened with perjury charges if she didn't stick to her original story. But finally, in December of 1920, Lorlando and Frank were released. So, by now, rumors running rampant through the city. People were tripping. Rightfully so. The police were being inundated with reports from citizens claiming to have seen an axe man lurking in neighborhoods, axes and chisels found in backyards, doors and windows that appeared to have been tampered with. People began to carry loaded shotguns, and family members took turns watching over their families at night. One report alleged that the axe man was masquerading as a woman. Another said that he had been seen leaping over a back fence. The people were afraid and determined to protect themselves, and but it was starting to border on panic. The papers were all over it, and it had appeared that Italian immigrants were being targeted despite the fact that they weren't all Italian. But why were the Gretna authorities so quick to assume that neighbors against whom there was no evidence, must have been the killers. Mm -hmm. Why were they so willing to ignore the advice of New Orleans police chief who had come to believe that there was a bloodthirsty serial killer targeting Italians? Here's the short, the shortest short version I can give. <laughs> and y'all know it's not easy for me because history. So here we go. So New Orleans had Italian... Er, mm, words... Okay. New Orleans had Italian immigrants from its earliest days, and the Italian business community had established itself in the city well before the Civil War. These early arrivals came mostly from northern Italy, but it was the need for cheap workforce in the late 19th century that led to the great influx of Sicilians into the state and the city and enticed men like Lorlando Giordano to make the journey from Sicily to Louisiana, and many of them worked on sugar and cotton plantations in the New Orleans area, and as one plantation owner wrote about them, they are a hardworking, money-saving race and content with few comfort few of the comforts of life. So an immigrant who carefully saved his money could easily strike out on his own within a few years. And as far as the planters were concerned, this was the one problem with keeping their Italian workers. Mm -hmm. Planters grumbled that they couldn't keep the Italians in the fields because in a couple of years they would have saved money and they would start up a fruit shop or a grocery store. By 1900, a small Italian-owned no. By 1900, small Italian-owned <laughs> businesses had sprung up all over Louisiana, but unfortunately, the commercial success of Sicilian immigrants couldn't protect them from the racial prejudices of the American South. Italians never entirely replaced black labor in Louisiana, but worked alongside the African Americans in the fields. While Italians not understanding the racial hierarchies of the South, they didn't see anything wrong with it or shameful. It's hard work is hard work. Mm -hmm. But for the native whites, their willingness to work alongside the African-Americans made them no better than this is all in quotations. This is a quote. Negroes, Chinese or other non-white groups. Mm. 
The swarthy Sicilians were often considered not white anyway, but were referred to as black dagos. Cute. That is all in quotation. Now, by the early 20th century, Italians were taking over the corner market business. In 1880, they were 7% of the grocery stores in the city, but by 1900... 19% were Italian-owned, and by 1920, the Italians ran half of the groceries in the city. Despite their successes, they were still stereotypes that clung to Italian immigrants, some of which did have a basis in reality. The Sicilians brought with them to America their clannishness and distrust of the authorities, which led them to settle disputes in the ways of the old country, the vendetta. Mm, We love a good vendetta. I know I do. Yep. This was how disputes were handled in Sicily, and the immigrants did bring it with them to New Orleans, and vendettas, both personal and professional, were not uncommon, so there were many shootings and knife knife fights? Knife fights. Knife fights. Knife fights that took place on Decatur Street, which is why it's nicknamed Vendetta Alley. So the fear of immigrant crime peaked between 1890 and 1891 with the murder of New Orleans police chief... David Hennessy, who was gunned down as he arrived home on the night of October 15th, 1890. Mortally wounded, and right before he died, he insisted, the Dagos got me. Ay-yay. So he'd previously been involved in a violent dispute between two Italian families, the Provenzios and the Mantra... Mm. The Provenzanos and the... Fuck, Clayton, I know you're going to get me on this. Okay. <laughs> the Provenzanos... Matra- Matrangas. Matrangas? M-A-T-R-A-N-G-A-S? Anyway, so what... Like, you were asking the wrong person. Yes, so with that very brief historical breakdown, despite Mooney and D'Antonio's views, when the Axemen attacked the Cordemillas, the Gretna authorities could more easily accept a vendetta between two Italian businesses and two Italian families than they could the idea that there was a bloodthirsty serial killer stalking the streets. So that being said, even some New Orleans police officers also believed that the vendetta could explain the Axeman murders. Hmm. So here we are, back in March of 1919. The Cordemilla family has just been attacked and things are about to take a turn. On the 19th of March, a letter was sent to the Times-Picayune newspaper, supposedly from the serial killer himself. The letter reads, Hell, March 13th, 1919. Esteemed mortal, they have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the axe man. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, be smeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc., but tell them to beware. Let them try. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the axe man. 
I don't think there is any need of such a warning for I feel sure the police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, I am cold and I crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse. Hoping that thou wilt, no, that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee, I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fantasy. The Axeman. That's a dope fucking letter. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> right? Now, that was shit. In case you're all wondering what the fuck a Tartarus is, because I was. It's not a phone booth. No. It is, it is in, not. In Greek mythology, it was the deep abyss that was used as a dungeon of torment and suffering for the wicked, as well as used as a prison for the Titans. So there you go. I, I did know that. Yes. For we did a very uh, insane unit my freshman year in high school on Greek mythology. Love Miss it. Myron, Myron Philene was my teacher. Myron Philene. He probably looks exactly like you'd think. God bless that <laughs> man. He was the best. Uh, but yeah, I, such a long time. It was, I, it's like the one thing I remember from... Isn't it weird uh, freshman high school English class was just so much Greek mythology. He uh, must have been really into it. I, my, I'm pretty sure Myron was way down with the Greek <laughs> mythology. Like, was his shit. I just, oh man, that was his shit. It was that was his absolute jam. I just remember his argyle socks. Oh, bless it, God, that guy was great. <laughs> What's his name again? Myron Filene. That's a great one. It is a great one. He was cool. So, anywho. Now, the next Tuesday night that the Axeman was referring to in the letter would have been Tuesday, March 18th, which just happened to be the eve of St. Joseph's Day, which is a major holiday for the Italians. So, was it bullshit? A hoax? A letter from a serial killer? I don't know. But at 12.15 a.m., Tuesday evening, March 18th, the residents of New Orleans jazzed it up like they have never jazzed it up before. Restaurants, clubs, bars, overflowing with people who felt that their lives were, like, literally fucking dependent on it. Every musician, whether they had ever been booked before or heard of, was booked and playing. Every neighbor, friend, family member, and stranger were gathered together surrounding the jazz trios and the bands who were playing their hearts out that night. And those that had Victrolas were playing any and every jazz record they had on fucking repeat. 
There were hundreds of parties that night, and the people of New Orleans danced the night away. Weird. <laughs> Supposedly inspired by the killer's letter to the Times, one composer named Joseph John Davila claimed to have composed the mysterious Axeman's Jazz, Don't Scare Me Papa, while waiting for the Axeman on the evening of the 18th. A bit of a self-promoter, uh, that guy. So by Thursday morning, he was offering sheet music for sale. His business maneuver was so shrewd that many thought that he himself could have written the letter as a part of a marketing ploy to sell his composition. Maybe, maybe not. But needless to say, the Axeman did not kill anyone on the night of the 18th, but he would strike again just a few months later. On August 10th, 1919, Steve Boca, another grocer, was attacked in his bedroom as he slept by an axe-wielding intruder. Boca woke up during the night to find a dark figure standing over his bed. Then it was lights out Steve. When he regained consciousness, Boca ran out into the street for help, realized that his head had been bashed the fuck open. Uh-oh. He then went ran to his neighbor's house, Frank Janusa, lost consciousness and collapsed. Nothing had been taken from the home, yet once again... A panel on the back door had been chiseled away. So. Boca recovered from his injuries, but he could not remember any details of the attack. On September 2nd, 1919, a local druggist named William Carson claimed to have escaped the Axeman when he fired several shots at an intruder who had broken into his home. Carson said that the intruder left a broken door and an axe behind. Huh. September 3rd, 1919. 19-year-old Sarah Lauman was attacked with an axe while she slept in her locked and shuttered home. When neighbors came to check on Sarah, who had lived alone, they discovered her lying unconscious on her bed, suffering from a severe head injury and missing several teeth. Ooh. Though she suffered from a brain concussion, she did recover and a bloody axe was found on the front lawn of her building. So once again, New Orleans was in a state of hysteria. But nothing more would be heard from the Axeman for nearly two months until October 27th, 1919, when grocer, grocer, <laughs> grocer, Mike Pepitone was found murdered in his bed. That's such a great name. That night, Mike's wife had heard a noise in the bedroom and she went to check it out. She saw a large axe-wielding man leaving the scene. Mike had been struck in the head and was covered in blood and there was blood spatter all over the fucking room, yeah. including... Their painting of the Virgin Mary. Oh, that's not good. I know. Mike's murder left his wife and six children alone. Oh. Mrs. Pepitone was unable to describe any other characteristics of the killer, and the usual clues had been left behind. Nothing taken. Door panel. The authorities continued to work on the case, but as they did, there were still no leads on who the axemen could be. New Orleans was once again on high alert, and her people waited on bated breath for another murder. But it never came. Mike Pepitone's murder was the last known victim, or the last known killing of the Axeman, and he was never seen or heard from in New Orleans again. Or was he? So the murder of Mike Pepitone may have actually not been the work of the Axeman and may have, in fact, been a part of a longstanding vendetta. Mm -hmm. So after the Pepitone murder, Esther Pepitone and her children relocated to Los Angeles. In September of that same year, she married Angelo Albano. The couple had met previously in New Orleans. Mr. Albano had entered into a business partnership with Joseph Doc Mumphrey, a pharmacist and criminal from New Orleans. 
Mumphrey had used several aliases and was rumored to have belonged to a gang that targeted Italian business owners. He was a convict who spent time in prison for bombing an Italian-owned grocery store, yet somehow now he's a pharmacist. Hmm. On the anniversary of Mike Pepitone's death, Angelo Albano left to go buy some produce from the store. He was in a great mood, and according to the L.A. Times, witnesses report that Angelo was whistling and humming happily as he walked to the store. As you do. He made it to the grocery store. And to the bank, where he made a withdrawal. After that, Angelo vanished, never to be seen again. Oh. Esther Pepitone, now Mrs. Albano, questioned Joe Mumphrey regarding her husband's whereabouts. Mumphrey made no secret of what he knew, and he was like, yeah, we've got him. Albano was being held in an extortion attempt, and Mumphrey said that she would, that she would be asked for more money yeah. when things quieted down. Then on December 5th, 1924, Mumphrey went to the Albano home and made good on his promise. Yeah, boy. Mrs. Albano opened the door. Mumphrey said uh, he had a gun and he told her to give him $500 and all of her jewelry. She said, okay, let me go gather all that for you. But instead, she grabbed a thirty-eight yeah, and she unloaded it into Joe Mumphrey's head and chest. Yeah, she did. She then went for a second gun and emptied that one into him, too. Nice. Hell yeah, Esther. Get yeah. it. The coroner reported the cause of death as gunshot wounds to the head, <laughs> chest, and abdomen. Really? But he could not make a ruling as to the manner of death being either homicide or self-defense on Mrs. Albano's part. When the police asked her why she did it, she said, because this man killed my husband. Now, mind you, her only dead husband was Mike Pepitone. Ah, uh, touche. Angelo was still just missing. She was eventually implicated in his disappearance, but she was tried and acquitted, and to this day, no one knows what happened to Angelo Albano. He never turned up. Oh, no. Ever. Well, that's not. Right. Yeah, it's so, not great. true crime writer Colin Wilson speculates that the Axeman very well could have been Joseph Mumphrey, and true crime writer Michael Newton says Mumphrey was not an unusual surname in New Orleans at the time of the crimes, and it appears that there actually was a dude named Joseph Mumphrey in New Orleans, did have a criminal history, and who may have been connected to organized crime. Two of the alleged earlier victims of the Axeman were the Italian couple, Chiambra. They were shot by an intruder in their lower Ninth Ward home on the early morning of May 16, 1912. Mr. Chiambra survived, but his wife did die. In newspaper accounts, the prime suspect was referred by the name of Mumphrey more than once. So while radically different from the Axeman's usual M.O., if Joseph Mumphrey was indeed the Axeman, the Chiambras may well have been the earliest victims of the future, future serial killer, or at least tied to it in some way uh, to the possible vendetta murder of Mike Pepitone. But I will touch on this again in a bit. So the Axeman may have actually killed again after the murder of Mike Pepitone. Mm -hmm. The actual Axeman. Evidence yes. from police records and newspaper accounts show that he may have struck somewhere else in Louisiana, killing Joseph Sparrow and his daughter Alexandria in December of 1920. Giovanna, Giovanni Orlando in DeRitter in Jan... Okay, well, go back. <laughs> Joseph Sparrow and his daughter in Alexandria, Louisiana, December 1920. Giovanni Orlando in DeRitter, Louisiana in January of 1921 and Frank Scalisi in Lake Charles, April of 1921. The killer's M.O. was exactly the same as the Axeman, breaking into an Italian grocery store in the middle of the night, 
attacking the grocer and family with their own axe. And this, after this, though, there were no other murders in Louisiana that could be attributed to the axe man. So who was he? Let's get to the suspects. Theory one, the black hand. Yep. So since the majority of the axeman's attacks were on Italian grocers, it led some to believe that they were all victims of the early form of the mafia through the vendetta called the Black Hand. Black Hand crime was a name given to an extortion method used in Italian neighborhoods at the time. Therefore, the murders could be linked to unpaid extortion debts. However, the axeman left few people alive, uh, which many mafia experts believe would not have been the case if they had been true Black Hand attacks. Yeah, Black Hand was also considered briefly in the St. Albans Street Massacre mm-hmm. I talked about, but mm-hmm. it was not really in fashion anymore right. at the time. They weren't really an organization anymore. So the vendetta could well have been the reason behind a number of the attacks, but in my opinion doesn't explain the solo attacks on the women. But no. who knows? Um, theory two, Joseph Mumphrey. Mumphrey is the only legitimate suspect to have ever been linked to the real identity of the Axeman. He led a blackmail gang in New Orleans that targeted um, Italian-Americans in December 1920, a year after the Axeman had killed Mike Mike Pepitone. As we know, he himself was shot dead by Pepitone's widow. Mrs. Pepitone claimed Mumphrey was the Axeman and remembered seeing him run from the bedroom the night her husband was killed. Mm. Joseph Mumphrey had served time in prison, the dates coinciding between 1912 and 1918 with when the Axeman attacks stopped. He was in prison. Mm. They resumed at the same time that Mumphrey was released. Mm. He left New Orleans after the killing of Mike Pepitone, again explaining why the Axeman seemingly disappeared after 1919, but then there was the 1920 and 1921 murders. I personally think that the Mumphrey-Pepitone thing was totally fucking separate. separate. Yeah. I think it was totally separate. I agree. Theory three, copycat killers. Although the Axeman had a very distinct MO, not all of the killings followed it to the letter, leading some to believe that the Axeman murders were, in fact, many different murderers and not even remotely related. Axe murders were also very very common because everybody had an axe. And we've we've covered that. (laughs) And everybody everybody had murderous intent. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, "Mm, it's a Sunday afternoon. Guess it's time to do a murder. (laughs) I'm like, oh, I left my axe at home. Good. Don't worry about it, Charles. They've got an axe. Uh, Axes for everybody. Axes for all. The guy you want to kill has an axe. Just take it from him and put it in his head. So theory You're number right. four, You're right. and it's a long one. Okay. It's a long one, okay. and I had to throw it in. It's an interesting theory. It's an interesting tie-in that is called a, th- it's not necessarily a theory, but it goes together. You'll see. So in 1947 in Tacoma, Washington, police arrested a man named Jake Bird, a 45-year-old black transient yep. who hopped trains across the country. I have almost covered Jake yep. Bird and his... On October 30th, 1947, the home of Bertha Clute and her daughter Beverly, June Clute, was broken into by an intruder with an axe. When Bertha tried to pull out a weapon, the perpetrator hacked her to death with an, with an axe. Her daughter Beverly ran downstairs and confronted her mother's killer, and she was hacked to death as well. Two police officers sent to the home to investigate reports of screams saw a man run out the back door, so they ran after him. He was captured and taken to the Tacoma City Jail, where he confessed to the killings and was identified himself as Jake Bird, claiming the murders were a result of a burglary gone bad. 
Bird had an extensive criminal record, including many counts of burglary and attempted murder, and had been incarcerated for a total of 31 years in Michigan, Iowa, and Utah. But guess what, y'all? Bird was a transient who had been born in Louisiana in a location that he could not actually remember. He just knew it was Louisiana. He supported himself as a manual labor and railroad worker, and he laid and maintained the tracks. The work on the railroad kept him moving from place to place, and the New Orleans police decided that he was the axe murderer of 1918. During questioning, Jake claimed responsibility for 44 murders across the country. Bird did live in New Orleans during the axe murders of 1918, and at the time, he was a teenager and would have been thin enough to fit through the door panels. But since nothing else connected him to the Axemen murders, absolutely nothing came of it. Yeah. Jake Bird was tried, convicted, and sentenced to hang for the murders of Beverly Clute and her daughter. Bird was allowed to make a final statement, which he did. Oh, he certainly did. He did, saying, I'm putting the Jake Bird hex on all of you who had anything to do with my being punished. Mark my words, you will die before I do. Six people connected with his trial died. Yes, they did. Judge Edward D. Hodge died of a heart attack within a month of sentencing, as did one of the officers who took Bird's first confession. A police officer who took a second confession died, as did the court's chief clerk and one of Bird's prison guards. Now, I know that's only five, but just give me a minute. Jake Bird's execution was scheduled for January 16, 1948, but Bird said that he had committed 44 other murders, which he was willing to help the police solve. Washington Governor Monrad C. Walgren granted him, I know. <laughs> Monrad. Monrad. That's a great. Monrad Walgren. That's a just great silly name. Yeah, she is Monrad C. Walgren. Don't hear that name ever. Ever. I think just the one. I probably. Just just the one. Does anyone know a Monrad? Is, are you a Monrad? Please <laughs> let us know. Do you have a, do you have a great, great grandpappy Monrad? Oh, That's shit. not this one. A different right. one. Right. So Walgren granted him a 60-day reprieve while the police from the other states interviewed Bird. Eleven murders were substantiated, and he was knowledgeable enough about 33 other murders to be considered at least the prime suspect. The interviews with Bird enabled the police departments of many states to declare many unsolved murders as solved. In addition to his Washington state murders, Bird had killed people in Florida, Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Michigan, Nebraska, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. He mostly preyed on Caucasian women, and all of his victims were killed with an axe. During his reprieve, Bird lodged an appeal, but a retrial was denied by the Washington State Supreme Court. His appeals to the federal courts, including three petitions to the U.S. United States Supreme Court, were also denied. He was hanged on the morning of July 15, 1949, at 12.20 a.m. in front of 125 witnesses, and he was buried in an unmarked grave in the prison cemetery, and the sixth death from what's known as the bird hex, was J.W. Selden, one of Bird's lawyers who died on the first anniversary of his sentencing. Theory five. Yep. My headphone's falling off. <laughs> Theory five. Ungodly demon. Yep. Yep. So his ability to appear in people's homes in the middle of the night and vanish just as easily had some believing that the axe man was indeed what he said he was in his letter to the press, 
the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fancy. So, if y'all are fans of American Horror Story, yeah. then y'all remember Season 3 Coven, the Axeman, and his ghost became an issue for the ladies of Miss Robichaux's Academy for yep. Exceptional Young Ladies. And there's a reason why Ryan Murphy decided, while researching Nola, to include the Axeman into his storyline. You can't not! And that's because the Axeman and his ghost have become interwoven into Nola's history and cultural makeup. Yes. The house where... Joseph Maggio and his wife Catherine lived is said to be haunted by their ghosts. On certain nights near the area, people have reported hearing screams. The hospital where Joseph Romano was treated is said to be haunted by his restless spirit. From March 13th to the 15th, it's a New Orleans tradition to play jazz in most bars and clubs at least once a night in order to ward off the ghost of the axe man. And last but not least, according to local legend, the aptly named Haunted Hotel of New Orleans is the location believed to be where the Axeman lived and hid out between the murders, and locals believe that the hotel is haunted by his ghost. Ooh. In the back of the hotel... I know where we're going yes. next time we go. In the back of the hotel, there's a courtyard with a super dark vibe where visitors have claimed to have seen dark shadows, pools of blood, and have captured EVPs and experienced... Experience? Experience. Experience. Strange glitches with electronics. One of the most baffling things about the Axeman attacks was that he entered his victims' homes by chiseling small holes in their doors. There were no other signs of entry, and he did not break down entire doors. Instead, he managed to fit through these impossibly small entry points. Makes me uncomfy. Some of which were overlooked by the investigators at first because it seemed that no adult male could get through them. Like I said, makes me real uncomfy. So whoever he or she was, whether a psychopath, a mafia assassin, or an ungodly demon, I'm sure they're jazzing it up now wherever they may be. Oh, uh, yeah. That is the long-ass motherfucking story that has been a long-ass time coming. Yes. Of the Axeman of New Orleans. Yes. My sources... Sites.psu.edu, heathermonroe.medium.com, ghostcitytours.com, filmdaily.co, Beckheim, legendsofamerica.com, Kathy Weiser, nolaghosts.com, smithsonianmag.com, Miriam Davis, too many fucking wikis, <laughs> all of them, crimeandinvestigation.co.uk, criminalminds.fandom.com and ranker Amanda Sedlak Hevner. Love her. I do too. Yes, I mentioned the Axeman in episode one. Yep. Because I am a proponent of the railway The railway. Worker. Yep, and yep, yep, yep. I'm like, hmm, was he responsible for Velisca? Mm. Mm. Entirely possible. Makes a lot of sense. I like that theory. And then there's the Hinter Kaifak. Also, yes. Right? Yes. I got some theories and stories and theories. The Axeman? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't... I, mm. I think that... I, I feel like definitely there were some people taking advantage of mm -hmm. the fact that he was there. They're like, well, I'm just going to axe this guy in the face. Yeah. They'll never know it was me. And they were right. Um, yeah. But yeah. I think the solo lady attacks 
Not so much. Mm. Um, I think that the only ones that were really tied were the Italian grocers. Yeah. I think that they were all, except for uh, Patino. Yeah. That mm. was that was its own thing. Unless it was Mumfrey killing them all. <sighs> but why? Because he was the leader of the extortion ring yeah, that was extorting nothing, all of them. If he was, if it was for extortion, you'd think cash, jewelry would be taken, would be gone, because mm-hmm. that was the whole point of these vendettas and right. extorting people was some kind of monetary mm-hmm. gain. But everything was there, right? Well, and then the vendettas were mainly between families that were in a fight, right? You know, um. So I, mm-hmm. and the letter was the letter by that composer. I mean, he got, he made a lot of money real yeah. quick off of that letter. Yep. I don't think the letter was from the killer. Mm. Mm. I don't, it's, it's, I don't know. It's a great letter though. Mm-hmm. Great letter. But yeah, I don't know. The, the, the panel on the back of the door is a weird one. Yeah. It just, I don't like it. It makes me uncomfy. Yeah, your foot hurt? I Stop squeezed. Or well, I didn't mean to. I was trying to pop one thing and then I touched the swollen part on accident. Mm. So yeah, that that's you know, I had to do it number 1 mm-hmm. and I've been hanging on to it cuz I knew it was going to be a long one. That was 16 pages. Well, again, <laughs> it's but it's 14 a 14 point story. font. Look. That is true. Exactly. That's probably the same as like an 8 pager for yeah. you though. Yeah, exactly. Fair. Exactly. Fair. It's a great story, though. It is a great story. It's a great story. It is. Axman. I'm surprised it took you this long. Yeah. I done done it, though. And now you see why I couldn't do this one from afar. Yes. Yes. This this is an in-studio story. Space flavored. Whatever, dude. (laughs) Just, what? I don't, I mean, I don't know what space tastes like, but I don't think it's that. I don't want to know, to be honest. No, I have no desire to find out. No, I'm good. I don't want to go to there. No. What you got? What you got? Well, I've got some things to tell you. I like things and stuff. You might not. Oh, shit. So I'm I'm not sure if I've mentioned it on the show before. You know, because you've known me for a hundred years. But I am a huge fan of Lifetime movies. You are? Love them. Love, fucking love them. Love them. Give me, like, post-2005 Lifetime. I'm into it. Like, just 90s Tory spelling as a cheerleader. Love it. Yes, please. I am set for mm. days. Mm-hmm. Um, and I own quite a few of them on yeah. DVD. Mm-hmm. But my Blu-ray player is being a wang, and I haven't fixed it yet. <laughs> so... There is that. But, and there is a point to this. Of course there is. Um, I got back from Florida and decided to take a day off from doing anything mm-hmm. and just snuggle in bed with my dogs and watch movies. Cut to my very joyous surprise to find <laughs> out that Amazon Prime has a ton of Lifetime movies oh, on it. Um, unfortunately, my favorite one is not on there. I used to watch it with my cousin a lot, and I'm pretty sure 
we recorded it off of the TV without the express written consent of baseball. I am sorry about it. Um, it's a great, great, great movie. After a while, I eventually located it on DVD. This was years ago now. Mm-hmm. And in my digging, because you know when things say they're like based on a true story, you're like, sure, whatever, fine. Yeah, okay. Right. Like Fargo is based on a true yes. story. Yes. Loosely. And so I didn't know that when I first watched this movie. I found out when I found the DVD. I'm like, oh. And why I haven't covered the story until now is I don't I don't know. So here we are. And with that lengthy preamble out of the way, today I am going to tell you about the murder of heiress Anne Scripps Douglas. Okay. Yes. So Anne Scripps was born in Albany, New York on November 18th, 1946 to parents Anne Gibbs Scripps and Captain James E. Scripps the third. The third. Mm-hmm. Just, there are a lot of Anne's in this story. Lots of Anne's. Lots of Anne's. All the Anne's. Many an Anne. Uh, her great-great-grandfather, James E. Scripps, founded the Detroit News, and she was also the heiress, or an heiress, to the E.W. Scripps Company. All right. So look into that if you want, because they are still kicking. Okay. Around. Like, Scripps are around. You have definitely heard of their businesses. Shit. Got it. Um she and her younger siblings, James the Fourth and Mary, <laughs> grew up in the affluent old money Albany suburb of Ludenville. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anne attended an all-girls Catholic school, went to debutante balls, and was essentially raised to become the perfect wife and mother in the future. Uh, while her life seemed perfect on paper, as we all know, behind closed doors things aren't always what they seem. Uh, Anne was largely raised by her grandmother because her father was an alcoholic and her mother suffered from manic depression. Mm-hmm. In 1966, she graduated from a two-year Catholic college with a focus on interior design and moved to Bronxville, where she met stockbroker Anthony Tony Morell. In 1969, 23-year-old Anne married Tony at the incredibly fancy St. Regis Hotel. Fance. A wedding that would receive its own three-page spread in town and country and featured guests like Princess Immaculata Habsburg of Vienna. Ooh, Habsburg. She was, I believe, a bridesmaid. uh, And Victor Emmanuel Jr. of the House of Savoy, a direct descendant of the King of Italy. Jesus Christ. So these were the kinds of people that they associated with. Wow. Yes. Much fans fans. Much fans fans. So shortly after they got married, Anne and Tony welcomed their first daughter, Alexandra. Fifteen months later, their second daughter, Annie, was born. Another Anne. There's at least three Anne's. (laughs) At least three Anne's. Anne loved being a mother and was always with her girls. They did crafts, garden, painted, roller skated through the halls of their giant house. I mean, uh, as you, I would, right? Uh, yes. Why not? Uh, they went to church together. They made trips to get ice cream, and Anne even walked both girls to and from school every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, one friend said that if anything, the girls were spoiled by their mother's love. They were always with her, and always expected she would be with them. According to her college roommate B.J. Maloney, Anne enjoyed the simple life. She was a homebody. Uh, and that tracks because Anne didn't even learn to drive until she was in her 40s. Oh. Yeah. Like, yes, get it. 
Unfortunately, her husband Tony didn't really feel the same way. Uh-oh. He liked to drink and party, and eventually their differences caught up with them in 1988 when they divorced after nearly 20 years of marriage. Oh. Uh, her friends remember how difficult being single was for Anne, with one friend saying, Anne was the last of that generation of Stepford wives. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, friends would remember her as kind, sweet, and a little naive. Another friend, Gretchen Devlin, shared that it was hard for her to be single. Anne was more afraid of being alone than anything else. She had believed in Tony, believed in marriage. She was afraid to be alone raising her kids. But she wouldn't have to wait long for another prince to come along and sweep her off her feet. Or so she thought. Right, right. Less than a year after her divorce, 42-year-old Anne met the handsome 33-year-old Scott Douglas on Super Bowl Sunday at Kelly's Sea Level Pub in Rye, New York. Scott, the handsome leather jacket-wearing type, uh, ran a house painting business out of his Greenwich apartment. His neighbor, Eleanor Hannon, remembered Scott, saying he was a good-looking guy. He had a great body, was very good-looking, charming, affable, a Boy Scout of a guy with a light and dark side. How dark that side was, though, no one truly knew until it was too late. Not too much information is out there about Scott's early life, but here is what I could find. Uh, He was born in and raised in Larchmont, New York in January of 1955. His parents divorced sometime in his childhood. He moved to Bronxville with his mother when she got remarried. He had some siblings. He dropped out of high school and began dating and living part-time with a woman named Phyllis Crichton, a mother of two who happened to be 12 years older than he was. Mm -hmm. While they were together, Phyllis was under the impression that Scott was attending Boston University, but there are no records to prove he ever went there. His father, Norman, had been an alcoholic and, when he died, was uh, buried in a potter's field. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, he kept his baggage hidden very well from most people. Like the fact that he was a heavy drinker with commitment issues and at least one secret child who liked to date wealthy older women and also saw a therapist for unknown issues. But even those that had a little peek behind the curtain found him charming, funny, and helpful. Uh, Anne ended up hiring Scott to paint her house, and nine months later, he asked her to marry him. Oh. Yeah. Fast track. Very fast track. By painting her house, did he mean put a baby in her? Both. (laughs) Both. Because that timeline is suspect. Well, you would think, but no. I do think. But no. I, they do mm. They do have a baby, but it's not. that's not why they got married. Um, so while Alex and Annie wanted nothing more than for their mother to be happy, neither one of them liked Scott. Alex would say, he was not very bright and very inarticulate. I had nothing in common with him. She also called him trash to his face. Oh. <laughs> I believe more than once. Oh. Yeah. Uh, They found him crass and were concerned that he was only trying to take advantage of their sweet, sensitive mother. Needless to say, no one was really stoked on Anne marrying Scott, but the wedding took place in October of 1988 anyway, just five days after Scott proposed. Five days? Five days. Oh. Five days. Knew each other for nine months, proposed five days later. Here's the wedding. Sold. Um, a judge performed the ceremony in the living room of Anne's Bronxville home in front of 20 guests. 
Anne's family hadn't been invited because she knew they didn't approve of the marriage. Her brother was like, you just got divorced. Um, Maybe you don't marry barely know this guy. Maybe wait just a little bit. And she's like, I know what I'm doing. He's like, well, okay. You are an adult. Um, But yeah, they didn't. Her family was like, mm, no. And Scott claimed that his mother was absent because she was dead. Guess what? She was not. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, one wedding guest, clearly someone that would be sitting on Anne's side, said of the groom, he was classless, a name dropper. You could see that immediately. He was shifty. He had a slimy, weak handshake, didn't look you straight in the eye, had no conversation, had nothing to say. What could he talk about? House painting? He didn't speak our language. Which, yikes. Yes, big yikes. But also, yeah. 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 I mean, they sound a little snooty patooty. Oh, but, but, 100%. But. But also. Yeah. Buddy. So, Anne also raised eyebrows with her decision to not have her new husband sign a prenup. Oh, no. Yeah. According to Annie, her daughter, my mom was in love with Scott at first. He would make her smile and laugh. But the minute they were married, he felt a sense of control over her and it just got worse and worse. Mm, Yeah. So following the wedding, the newlywed seemed incredibly happy and even discussed having children, which they both apparently wanted. Mm -hmm. And according to Annie, uh, had wanted to have more children with Tony, but he was done after their two daughters. But of course... The Douglas's honeymoon phase ended pretty quickly. Uh-uh. Um, Anne had expected that Scott would keep working after the wedding and do his part to help her out. Mm-hmm. Uh, or just in, just help out in general around the house, you know, whatever. Her brother James, however, explained that was not the case. She paid for everything, he said. He would charge my sister for any kind of job he did in the house. If he was painting houses, what did he do with his money? But yeah, she's like... He charged his wife? Yeah. For work around the house. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So he's that He's that kind of guy. Ew. He agreed. Uh, Gretchen Devlin, Anne's friend, said she thought he would share in the cost of the house, but he acted like a gigolo. Oh. She, was u- uh, she was used to being treated like a lady. Um, Anne refused to get a joint checking account, which is something that Scott was insistent on. She's like, absolutely not. Um, and she was like... That money, my money is my money. Your money is your money, mm-hmm. which good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Scripps family also did their best to keep Scott from knowing too much about the family finances in general. Right. Uh, at one point, Scott demanded a BMW from Anne because oh. his was uh, 1982 and, you know, he wanted something new. And she said again, no, nah. she refused to buy him a brand new car, which great. Okay. Money was a constant fight between Anne and Scott, and eventually he stopped caring who heard them argue about it. Uh, One night in front of a group of Anne's friends, Scott flew off the handle and yelled, I've gotten more from women I've dated two weeks than I've gotten from you in two years. Oh, God. In front of people. Wow. Gross. Dick. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, he's the worst. Sounds like it. So not only was money a constant fight between them, but their age and class differences uh, became rather noticeable rather quickly. Well, to Anne, anyway. Mm -hmm. Everyone else knew before they got married, (laughs) and Mm. she was catching up at this point. 
Uh, but we, you know, we've all been love struck and excused yep. some shitty behaviors from people before. So yep. I get it. Sure. Um, Scott also liked to hand out business cards at parties or the country club, which is generally frowned upon. Ah. But that was the, he was just one of those guys that would just be like, I'm Scott Douglas. Here's my business card. Blah, blah, blah. Painting and work and just seeing yeah. her friends as dollar signs. Yeah. Which not. Not great, uh, especially when there's no apparent effort to actually befriend or get to know any of the people in Anne's life. Mm -hmm. He's just kind of like, you got a lot of money. Here's my business card. Hire me to paint your house. They're like, ah, this is a wake. What are you doing? That's just me making things up. I don't know if he actually did that, but he sounds like the kind of guy that would have. Fair. Be like, "Mm, so sorry about your loss. Would you like me to repaint your house? Yeah. Just he just seems like that kind of guy. Yeah, no, he's shady. Yeah. Slimy is the word that I like that I think it was her friend used. Uh so yeah, just you know not not great. So again, yikes on both sides of this, but mm-hmm. seems like he was cutting off his own nose to spite his mm-hmm. face. And not not cool. Uh, In any event, in June of 1990, Anne and Scott welcomed their daughter, Victoria. Okay. So they were married for a couple years before the baby came. Got it. Uh, Everyone adored baby Tori. In an interview with People Magazine, Alex shared, We'd sit in Annie's bedroom and mom would make up silly stories and do little songs and dances with Tori. And she added that Scott was a surprisingly decent father, saying he'd bring her these little capsules that dropped into water and turned into sponge animals. She loved that. Okay. I remember those. Roman loves those. Yes, he does. Unfortunately, around Tori's first birthday, things started to unravel quickly. Uh Uh-oh. Alex moved out of the family home Mm -hmm. uh, to escape her stepfather. It was kind of like... A constant, well, she's the one that's like, you're trash. Yeah. And he is like, your daughter needs to move out. And Anne was like, probably. So she got her own apartment. Um, she remembered that shortly after Tori's first birthday, he was suddenly quick to judge and criticize everything and anything that Anne did. Uh, Alex said he got an attitude. He got very mean and controlling. And Annie added, after a while, he didn't care who he argued in front of, even Tori. Mm. Uh, The more they fought about money, the more time Scott spent in the Greenwich apartment he still operated his business out of. In fact, he spent so much time there, his neighbors didn't even realize he'd gotten married. Oh, His friend Tom Linsenmeyer said that Scott used to party a lot. There was never any mention of his wife. Oh. Yeah. When in Greenwich, he took many of his female clients out to dinner and a movie. Uh, Most most likely more than that. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think you need to to discuss painting over a movie. I don't feel like you need to wine and dine them when you've already painted their houses. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, he was he was a bit of a playboy, mm-hmm. apparently. Uh, and there had been apparent fights when he was dating more than one woman at the same time. Oh. Before Anne, I think. But, mm-hmm. yeah, they were like, mm. And maybe that's where all his house painting money went, was taking these women that weren't his wife on dates. Huh. Well, it's great. 
Great, great, great. So Alex and Annie both noticed Scott was drinking more often and becoming increasingly increasingly abusive towards their mother. Uh, In People magazine, Alex shared that Scott would frequently come home drunk, and when he was drunk, he became even meaner than normal and also became physical. Uh Uh-oh. He threw furniture around, broke glasses, and on one occasion, threw Anne into a wall. Oh, no. Uh, She missed a friend's Christmas party due to a scratched cornea and later sent a card to a friend that read, We planned on decking the halls. Wouldn't you know I would get decked myself? Oh, no. Yep. Uh, At one party, he slammed her face into the concrete driveway in front of witnesses. Oh, God. Yeah. Another time, Anne and Scott attended a wedding, which he hadn't initially been invited to because, according to Gretchen Devlin, there were already too many people who wanted to punch him out. Oh. But there he was anyway. Uh, During the reception, Anne accepted a dance from her former brother-in-law, which really pissed Scott off. Uh He marched out onto the dance floor, grabbed her by the arm, pulled her away, and called her a slut. Wow. Yeah. Alex claimed that Scott had attempted to strangle Anne at least once, and Anne herself recalled a time where her husband had tried to push her out of the car while speeding down the interstate. Huh. Yeah. All right. Annie said, I've seen him hit her, push her against walls, throw things at her, kick her. Uh, Anne started using coded language when speaking with her friends on the phone to avoid any potential fallout should Scott happen to overhear something he didn't like. Um... She also thought he may have been recording her phone calls after she found some strange-looking wiring in the basement. Uh, When she would say that things were okie-dokie, it meant the exact opposite, but that Scott was nearby and she couldn't speak freely. And let's do lunch was code for needing to meet up and have a conversation in person because Scott was coming and she couldn't talk anymore. Wow! Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, mm -mm. no thank you. Uh, In 1991, the couple separated and Anne and Tori moved in with Alex after Scott made repeated threats to Anne telling her that if she tried to leave him, he would take Tori and quote unquote disappear off the face of the earth. Oh, God. Yeah. Anne petitioned the New Rochelle family court for an order of protection and made an amendment to her will, which left Scott a portion of her trust. Uh, however, she had it set up to where he could only, or he would only receive about $6,500 a year, taxes not included. <laughs> uh, Scott, as abusers do, promised to change, and they reconciled. Mm-hmm. Um, and this happened a few times, and Alex was very irritated. Mm-hmm. Very. Because her and her sister Annie were both like, you just need to divorce this man. They would fight and would leave for a few days and then go back mm-hmm. <sighs> which we all know is part of the cycle and Anne's mother Anne said that about Scott he would straighten out for a little while and then go back to his old ways again mm-hmm. and Annie shared that his promise was always that it was because of his drinking that he'll stop drinking he'll go to AA meetings he'll see a counselor and this lasted for a while. Mm-hmm. I think he went to like two AA meetings. Sounds about right. Mm. By the fall of 1993, Anne had finally come to terms with the idea of a second divorce and met with her attorneys, who were able to arrange a filing date for early 1994. 
um, which should have been just a few months. Right. It's not that long. Uh, Scott lawyered up himself and said that he was looking for a quarter of a million dollars to leave the marriage. Oh, Jesus. In addition to fat alimony payments. <laughs> yeah. Um, Anne agreed to the payments, the money. She's like, I just don't care. I just want it to be done. But she stipulated that they all had to be arranged through the courts in order to avoid getting further extorted. Um, and she was also scared that he was going to use Tory as a means, like as a pawn, to get more money out of her. Mm-hmm. On December 6th, 1993, Anne filed another petition with the family court for another order of protection after discovering that Scott had taken important documents, like Tory's birth certificate, out of the house. Oh, snap. And would not tell her where it was. Uh, the court granted an order that prevented Scott from taking Tori out of the house without Anne's knowledge or permission and prohibited Scott from harassing his wife. But the judge didn't move to evict him and they remained in the same house for the time being. Hmm. The abuse escalated. Shocking. Um, in, in the lead up to Christmas. So Scott berated his wife for gaining weight and gave her a scale telling her to weigh herself every single day. She was barely over 100 pounds, by the oh, way. Jesus. She was a teeny tiny lady, like little bitty. Uh, he called her a slut and accused her of sleeping around and giving him an STD, oh. leading her to go to the doctor and get checked to prove that she hadn't been unfaithful and to see if maybe he had given her something. Right. She's like, oh, I don't like this. Um. He would wake her up in the middle of the night or early in the morning by screaming in her face. Oh, God. Uh, she was so scared by this point that she started sleeping with a hammer under her bed. Oh, my God. Yeah. Her fr- not great. No. Gretchen Devlin later shared that uh, Anne said he pushed her down the stairs, had thrown her on the floor and kicked her. She said she put up her hands. She said, take anything you want, but don't hurt me anymore. I can't take it anymore. She said he had pulled her hair so hard she thought he was going to pull it right out of her head. Damn. On December 29th, Anne returned to the New Rochelle family court with Annie, hoping to get a judge to evict Scott. Annie said that they told us to come back the next day because the judge was away. We went back the next day. They said come back after the new year. The judge was on vacation. Oh, shit. Yep. She then went to the Westchester Coalition for Family Justice, hoping for some kind of help, but received none. Oh. Uh, Deirdre Akerson, executive vice president of the organization, spoke with Anne and said she was afraid of getting beaten. She felt she was definitely in danger. She was concerned about finding a way to get him out of the house. I told her if she didn't feel safe at home, there were shelters. She didn't seem to think it was necessary. Uh, uh. Anne didn't go to any shelters or leave the home because she was afraid that Scott would use her brief absence against her in court as it could have technically been considered abandonment. Right. uh, Which would have given him a potential leg up in Tory's custody hearing. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Her brother James said she was trapped. She was absolutely trapped. Mm. Yeah. Um. Oh, my nose itches real bad. Scratch it. I'm gonna, but I wanted to drink first. So, on New Year's Eve, around 10 a.m., Tony Morell called the house to wish Annie a happy new year. Apparently, this set Scott all the way off. Mm. Uh, according to Tony, who was in Pittsburgh VA Medical Center waiting for a liver transplant at the time, uh, Scott kept jumping on the phone, yelling and screaming. We had an argument. 
I called him a bum and told him to do the town a favor and get out. Oh. That's why he got upset at Anne later. I just didn't think he'd ever do this. After the phone call fiasco, Scott left the house in a huff. Anne called his therapist, who claim- he claimed to see twice a week for the past month, mm-hmm. uh, and was told that they hadn't seen or spoken to Scott in months. Uh-oh. Like, mm. uh, Scott returned to the house later that day in the late afternoon, around four, and started a fight. Mm. According to Annie, he always used to threaten to kill my mom to take Victoria, but that day Scott said, that's it, the threats are over, something more has to be done. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, He went upstairs and watched TV in his room while Tori slept in the adjoining bedroom. Uh, Annie said that he came down in his pajamas to refill his vodka and OJ glass about once every 20 minutes. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Annie had planned on going to a New Year's Eve party that night, but offered to stay home with her mother and little sister. And declined, saying that he was in, it was just one of his moods. And that she'd be fine. And told Annie to go out and have a nice time. So at around 10 o'clock, she walked Annie to the front door and gave her a kiss goodbye. Ooh, hiccups. Annie returned home at around 3.30 a.m. And thought it was especially weird that Scott's car was gone. Um... She'd forgotten her keys earlier and was unable to get into the house. Everything was locked up. She knocked. No one answered. She had a sinking feeling that something horrible had happened. As it turned out, Scott's brother Todd had called the police after listening to a voicemail Scott had left him earlier in the evening. Because Todd had been out Mm -hmm. at a New Year's party, got home late, and had a message message on the answering machine. Uh, The message was allegedly from Scott saying... I've done something really bad this time. Uh Uh-oh. Phone records would later show that Scott had called his brother and sister shortly after he had attacked Anne. When they went to get the tape from Todd's answering machine, by they, I mean the police, Uh later, uh, it had disappeared. Uh. He claimed that he had brought brought it with him that night and given it to an officer. Nobody knows what happened to it. Alex and Annie and the Scripps family were convinced for a long time that there was something on that message from Scott. Mm-hmm. About being, I will come back to it because yeah. it's nuts. It wasn't true, but anyway, when police arrived, Annie told them to break down the front door if they had to. Uh, they made their way into the home, went upstairs, where they found Anne in Annie's room on her bed. Annie said that she and her mother had been sharing a bed lately because Scott would kick her off the bed and not let her get any sleep in Jesus. their room. Um, she was laying on her back with the family's King Charles Cavalier puppy cuddled up by her right hand, trying to comfort her. Uh, Robert Iamonico, an Eastwood emergency medical tech, was on the scene and shared that he couldn't tell where Anne's head ended and the pillow began because of the amount of blood. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, and I will talk about her injuries in just a second, but in spite of all of these injuries... Anne was still clinging to life. Oh. Uh, she was bandaged up, given oxygen, and put in an ambulance. Uh, inside, police found little Tori asleep in her bed. Unfortunately, when they woke her up, they discovered that she had witnessed her mother's attack. Oh, no. It's really bad. Uh, uh-oh. Um, in the police reports, she was quoted as saying, Daddy was giving Mommy so many bad boo-boos. Daddy gave mommy many boo-boos. Why is mommy wearing war paint? 
And why does mommy look like a monster? Oh, fuck. Yeah. Um, They took the toddler to a neighbor's house where Annie was waiting. Uh, She said that when the police brought her to me, she was blank, her whole face. She wasn't crying. She didn't talk for four days. She couldn't sleep. She would doze off every hour and wake up hysterically crying. Oh, God. Yeah, it's bad. Drama. It's real bad. Uh, Anne had been bludgeoned with a claw hammer while she slept. The uh, the claw part. The claw. The claw part of the hammer. Yeah. yeah. There were at least five blows to her face mm-hmm. and head. Uh, and there was one especially large gaping wound behind her left ear. Mm. Alex would later say that Scott took a hammer to my mother's head and a steak knife to her face. Oh. The intrusions in her head were so big, they thought they were gunshot wounds. Oh. Wow. Yeah. While in surgery to remove 20 pieces of skull from her brain, Tony Morell left the hospital he was in and flew to New York to be with his ex-wife and his daughters. Wow. Um, she remained in a coma, but Tony remembered her squeezing his hand when he sat and held her hand for a while. Mm-hmm. On January 6th, 1994, 47-year-old Anne was taken off life support. Uh, she died without ever regaining consciousness. Mm. Um. The next day, Tony Morell, who had recently been given six months to live due to cirrhosis, received Anne's liver. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I don't know why that made me sad. (laughs) Wow. But yeah, uh, her daughters made an arrangement with the doctors, like, please give our father, and we know she would have wanted this. And they arranged for, um, I believe it was like four other organs of hers to be donated Mm -hmm. to other people Mm -hmm. so they're like Mm -hmm. here you go um wow yeah that's cool that was very cool um where did that just go there we go um the family attorney said her daughters acted on what they knew would be their mother's wishes and left this world the way she lived it loving and giving uh, following her death Anne's family went after the new rochelle family court judge ingrid braslow Uh, claiming that she had refused to grant the order that would have effectively evicted Scott from the house. However, court documents showed that the case they were talking about hadn't been brought before Judge Braslow. It was a different judge. Um, And there had been no request made to have Scott removed from the home. Mm -hmm. So she was like, you can't, that nothing that you're saying or accusing us of happened. Like there was no request made for that so sorry Uh, the family went on to file an 11 million dollar suit against the county but it was dismissed Mm -hmm. Anne's mother Anne (laughs) told the press this could have been prevented my daughter would be alive today if that judge hadn't let him stay there I think it's criminal Uh, the night of Anne's attack police immediately set out to find Scott Douglas Uh, within a few hours his BMW was found parked on the Tappan Zee Bridge still on Oh. Uh-huh. And this wasn't long after they were like, mm, got to find this guy. It was just a couple hours. In the back seat, police found a jacket and an overnight bag containing new unused items like a toothbrush, toothpaste, and a shaving kit. Mm-hmm. In the front passenger seat, a bloody hammer. Oh, murder weapon. Mm-hmm. Had he jumped into the Hudson River 150 feet below the bridge, 
Or had he staged a suicide and fled? Uh, His credit cards were monitored, but no activity was reported. And this was why they thought that the tape from the answering machine had been lost because Mm -hmm. they're like, maybe Scott told his brother Todd where he was going and he hid it because he didn't want people to find him. Right. So. Or he jumped off the bridge. Or he jumped off the bridge. I assume nobody was ever found. Well, I'll get there. All right. Uh, So they dragged the river best they could because it's the Hudson and Mm -hmm. it's winter. Mm -hmm. Uh, They looked for five days and they stopped. It was when they stopped looking, it was two days before Anne was taken off life support. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was wanted for second degree murder, but nobody knew where he was. Uh, Anne's family initially believed, again, that he was just sneaky enough to have faked his death and even offered a large monetary reward for any information about Scott's whereabouts. Uh, Janine Pirro, yes, that one, if you are familiar with Court TV or Fox News, which if you are, why are you here? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) She is now a Fox News pundit and for a while she had her own judge show. Okay. Yeah. Judge Deneen Pirro. Um, so, yes, that is who that is. She has said some absolutely unhinged things. Ah. Um, she had been the Westchester district attorney for about 10 minutes when this case came across her desk. Oh. They were like, here you go. Surprise. Here's your first case. Oh, boy. Uh, she said that we continue to follow leads. None of those leads are bringing us any closer to Scott Douglas. Um, There is, of course, a possibility that he jumped off the bridge, but we won't know until spring because of Mother Nature. Uh We've sent in divers, tugboats, helicopters. If he did jump off the bridge, we'll know it. We will not lose that body. Yeah. Um, They they kept getting, like, random calls. Be like, he's here in New York. Uh He's in South America. Because, of course, he wasn't. all the places. He was not. Because three months after Anne's death, a railroad worker found a man's body washed up on the Bronx bank of the Hudson River. Due to the state of the body, dental records were used to positively identify him as Scott Douglas. Mm. So, yes, he had jumped off the bridge. Uh, In the pocket of his jeans, they found $507. Uh, He had been wearing a gold watch that had stopped at exactly midnight. Meaning that from the time Annie left home at 10 p.m. to the attack to his death was a very short window. Two hours. Because she, well, she left after 10. Yeah. It was like probably, you know, 10, 15-ish, 10, 30 when she left home. Hour and a half, hour Mm -hmm. 45. Yeah. Real short. Yeah. Real short. Yeah. Like Uh, the second she left. Pretty much. And she also- Killed his wife and then drove to the bridge. Yeah. And she also said- um, Annie said when she was talking about him coming down the stairs, get, mm-hmm. refilling his drink mm-hmm. anytime, she's like, I didn't put two and two together. Mm. He was getting hammered to make it easier to kill his to wife. Kill his wife. Ugh. And apparently Tori had hid under the bed Ugh. And when she heard her dad calling for her. Emotional trauma. Mm-hmm. As she should have. Yeah. Uh, upon hearing the news of Scott's death, Annie said it was a surprise, but the nightmare is over. And Alex said, we don't have to worry about him coming after us or Tori. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to one of Annie's friends, Hillary Shevlin Carmilowitz, 
Annie became a mom to Victoria. Everything she was going through, it was Tori, Tori, Tori. She wanted to get custody of her, but she was 22 years old. Hmm. Annie, Scott's parents, and Anne's sister and brother-in-law, um, Robert and Mary Scripps Carmody, um, they all engaged in a brief custody battle over baby Tori, but it was eventually ruled that she would be adopted by the Carmodys. Uh, they lived in Vermont, so they took Tori. She grew up as a relatively normal kid. Uh, in 1997, Lifetime released a movie based on the events of Anne's murder called Our Mother's Murder. Mm. And in some places it's called Daughters, which is, I've never seen that before, but apparently that's its alternate title. Okay. Uh, it starred Roxanne Hart as Anne, Sarah Chalk as Annie, James Wilder as Scott Douglas, and Holly Marie Combs as Alex. <laughs> yeah. my, my favorite Halliwell sister. Um... After the release of the film, Mary Carmody said that Tori was teased by classmates over the fact that she was adopted and over the fact that her mother was murdered. Those kids sound like fucking dicks. Mm. Uh, Tori would eventually go on to abuse drugs and was arrested in 2011 after police found nearly 200 baggies of heroin in her BMW. It was 193 baggies of the heroin that's too much it is way too much that's she too many heroines too many heroines and i believe she said says you at the at that point she was her habit was six baggies a day six heroines a day six heroines a day it's a lot of heroin bags yeah which is that's real that's, that's enough that's 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 prison yep and how long did she serve? I don't remember. Oh, um, enough. En- enough. Um, yeah. And then she spent some time in prison on the drug-related charges, swore she would get clean and attend AA and NA meetings once she was released. You know, all of that stuff. Wanted to turn her life around. Mm-hmm. In 2018, she was arrested again for stealing her adoptive mother's car and attempting to hawk some of her adoptive mother's heirloom jewelry. Heroin. Most likely. Probably. But before all this took place, and most likely a contributing factor to her PTSD and drug use, mm-hmm. another tragedy took place. So not only witnessing her mother being murdered, but another horrible accident. Uh-oh. So following their mother's death, Alex and Annie picked up the pieces as best they could. Both women got married and ended up living within 15 minutes of each other. Um, Alex had been dating a guy the whole time this mm-hmm. had happened. Uh, I can't remember his first name. Last name was Romeo. They got married. Amazing. And Annie married his best friend. That's adorable. Yes. So got married, lived within 15 minutes of each other. They talked like 10, 15 times a day. Alex had a baby girl named Alexa, and Annie had a son named Michael, or Mikey. And their kids were 15 months apart, just like they were. Oh, jeez. Both of them eventually got divorced. Annie's depression, however, seemed to lead her down a dark path. Uh Uh-oh. She blew through the majority of her inheritance pretty fast and also turned to drinking. 
Uh, she ended up hospitalized a couple of times due to her alcohol consumption and her depression. Uh-oh. Uh, while her son was at school, Annie worked part-time at a nursing home, but losing residence was too much for her. With Annie sharing, or I'm sorry, with Alex sharing, Annie would always get so upset whenever somebody died in the nursing home. They tell you not to get too close to the people, but Annie got close to everybody. Aww. Um, she had a few odd jobs over the years, but nothing really stuck. One of her former bosses said she was well-liked and she had a great personality, but she was drinking excessively and wouldn't always come to work in the best shape. Yeesh. In 2001, Annie and Alex's uncle George died in the attacks on September 11th. Yeesh. Uh, their father Tony died in 2005 from a heart attack. The father mm-hmm. who had been given Deliver. six months to live in 1993. Um... Heart attack. Uh, Annie's son, Mikey, started doing poorly in school, and it was decided that he should go live with his father in a different school district. Um, With Mikey gone most of the time, Annie started drinking even more heavily, like nightly. Uh, She eventually went to a treatment center called Silver Hill, where doctors recommended treating her depression with electroshock therapy. It did not work. Weird. Imagine. Weird. Uh, After she was released, she would forget people's names and certain events, except for the one they tried to make her forget. Uh, Alex said, we were looking at the photo album one day and she just burst into tears and said, I don't remember that trip. I hate that she forgot the good times, but always remembered that tragic day. Mm. Awful. That is pretty bad. It sucks. Jesus Christ. Yeah. On September 25th, 2009, Annie did her usual errands. In the early afternoon, she met up with Alex. They went for Manny Petties after lunch, and around 6 p.m., Alex went home. Mm-hmm. Um, at 7.30 p.m., Annie called her on-again, off-again boyfriend and good friend, Chris Smith. Mm-hmm. The connection was spotty, but he was able to hear that she was going to the gas station to get some cigarettes, which... He- was common, and sure. the reception in that area was bad, so he was like, oh, yeah, makes sense. She called him again at 749, but all he heard was a loud whooshing sound and then silence. Annie had parked her BMW on the Tappan Zee Bridge, walked to nearly the exact spot Scott Douglas had 15 years prior, and jumped. Oh, no. Oh, jeez. Her body was found three days later. Oof. Imagine finding your mother like that, her head torn apart and her face all ripped up. So my poor sister Annie had to live with that. I just don't think she ever got that image out of her head, was something Alex said after Annie's death. Uh, Alex hadn't been home when their mother was killed and didn't see her until she was in the hospital. But Annie was there that night. She rode with their mother in the ambulance. She saw all of it. Um, Officers found a note in her car, and it is downright heartbreaking. Oh, no. I can't read the whole thing to you because I will cry. I will oh, cry. No. I did, reading it. It's very sad. Is it there? Uh, I have part of it. Okay, I was going to say, I'll read it. No, it's... I'm a heartless bastard. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's real sad, but it was kind of like... Um, I feel like it was written kind of like a... What's it called? Your little idea web thing where you oh, put something yeah, in the center. Oh, yeah, outline? Yes. Yeah. Something like that, because it was different things in, like, little chunks. Okay. And in the center of the paper, uh, she wrote, Mommy and Daddy, please find me. Oh, God. It's too sad. Oh, Jesus. 
After her sister's death, Alex swore she wouldn't cross the Tappan Zee Bridge again, saying, never, too painful. I wish I had a happier ending for y'all, but I don't. And that, oh, you told us a bummer? That was the story of the tragic and senseless murder of Anne Scripps Douglas. Sad. Yeah. Uh, so, sources real quick. NewYorkMag.com, Robert Kolker, People.com, Karen S. Schneider, Wikipedia, Alcatron.com, Findagrave.com, uh, The True TV Archives, uh, an article by Mark Gribben. ABCnews.go.com, Deborah Roberts and Joan Martelli, uh, newspaper.com, an article from the Odessa American uh, from April 1st, 1994, BaltimoreSun.com, OrlandoSentinel.com, Michael Matza, a New York Magazine article from March 21st, 94 by Suzanne O'Malley, and the Dark Side of Love podcast by Bianca Sloan, episode 7. Bummer. Such a bummer. Wow. It is so, like, the movie um, is very sad. It's really, because you know how sometimes there are those actors where when they cry, you cry just on principle, like you can't stop yourself from crying? Right, right. Holly Marie Combs <laughs> is that person for me. Like, anytime she cries on my TV, I am also crying. Just, I don't know what it is. She's too good. She's too good at it. She's very good at her job. Because every Crying. time that woman cries, you can immediately expect me to follow right after. Hitfulness. Just, I can't. It, it's it's a really good movie. It's very, um, the only criticism Alex had of it was that the abuse was nowhere near as bad as, as, bad it, really was. as it was in real life. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. Like. Not great. But from my memory of watching it and researching, it's pretty fucking close to everything I read. Like, it's pretty accurate. Damn. From my understanding. Yeah. Damn. It's it's a very good movie. If you can find it, watch it. Damn. It was, oof. I'm sure it's good, but it shit. Is. It it's, sounds like a bummer, and now I know it. So it is I'm a good. super bummer. I'm good. It is a super bummer. Yeah, but uh, it was made in '97, so it does not have right the still very upsetting after facts. Oh, yeah, of it doesn't Annie. have. Yeah, yeah. Ugh, very very sad. Bummer. Well, super I'm... bummer. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. That was so depressing. <laughs> it is, but they also. Um, when they were approached about the movie being made, um, they were pretty much hands off. They're like, we don't just tell yeah, it, right? Just Please whatever. just do it. And maybe it it will help someone be able to leave mm -hmm. a similar situation. So maybe knowing our mom's story mm -hmm. will, will help someone. Yeah. Which is all you can hope for in that situations doesn't, like that right doesn't happen again well fuck way to end it on a bummer <laughs> i it just i was like oh i gotta do this one i got right now for some reason my brain was like it's now now the end there's no choice right. i was like are you sure brain you don't want to do something nope we said no Look at aliens and hilarious cryptids another time. <laughs> Today is not that day. Sorry to bring it back and end on a bummer. 
Well, shit. Yeah. Shit, shit. Well, shit. All right. Well, fuck. We done done it, y'all. We did done do it. We did done do it. We did done do it. We done done it. We did. We did. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, fuck. That was that was. I'm sorry. That was a real. I missed a good chunk of this whole episode. Real fucking bummer. I was working and applying for jobs. Oh yeah. All right. Well, fuck. We done done it. Y'all know the drill. Yep. Rate, review, subscribe. Do that. Share, share, share. Yes, please. If you would like some exclusive <laughs> motherfucking content, go become a patron on our Patreon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. Well, my foot is gross. Not feeling great? I mean, mm. But no. your tattoo looks good. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. It does. All right. Well, uh, fuck. God, that's a bummer, dude. I know. Fuck. Well, till next time, y'all. Hexes <laughs> and hoes, y'all. Hexes and hoes, y'all. Bye. Bye. Hats off to the fuck you club. And today, oh, a very hefty fuck you, Scott Douglas. Fuck you, Scott. Fuck Glad you're dead. You, buddy. Hope it hurt. I'm sure it did. I hope your mouth got fucked first. I mean, he jumped 150 feet into the Hudson River, so that wasn't gonna feel great. Yeah. It wasn't going to feel great. I hope at some point during your life you got a real big one up the butt. <laughs> Just stitches and blood. Gross. Like, like a real, like, end of American history X kind Ooh. of experience. Oh, Yikes. oh God. No. Yeah. I, I mean. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. Also, uh, this, is, this was a special request via Patreon message. Oh. Uh, no context. No context. I'm just doing it because it was asked. Okay. Uh, fuck you, Ted. You ugly fucking gremlin dickwad. Yes. Fuck you, Ted. Fuck you, Ted. Fuck you, Ted. You piece of shit. Yeah. Fuck As you. As I have threatened before, I'm going to come shit in your freezer yep. after just mountains of Taco Bell yes. enter my body. You. Go to Ted's house. It's just going to be like a, a you seen that movie, The Fly? <laughs> Like the ex- like that was Jeff great... Goldblum skin coming out my butt. That was... <laughs> yeah. Te- you fucking turd. What did Ted you do? S- Fuck you, Ted. What did you do, bro? You sack of shit. Stupid turd. Fuck you, Ted. I, I hope this isn't too far, but I hope uh, that no, you uh, get lost in traffic. Yeah. Yeah. I... I-, I hope you're looking at your phone while you're walking down the street and you wander into traffic. And then an open manhole. And, and No. No? No, I don't want him to fall. No, I wanted him to get smashed and then fall into an open oh, shit too sewer. Good. Too good. No, too good for that. I hit by a car. I wasn't done. And, okay, go on. We'll continue. <laughs> I want to see where you're going. How well, see, are we going to fuck Ted now? I want him, well, no one's going to fuck him because that would be nice. <laughs> Actually, no, Ted. No. Ted, <laughs> I'm going to retract that statement. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I hope that you get. Uh, you ever see those uh, Tom of Finland dildos? Oh, no. Do you know what Tom of Finland is? Uh, no. I don't know the name. Of, I don't know. Okay. Tom of Finland was a very famous uh, gay artist during World War II. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, the you... sailors. We've talked about this. Yes. And he makes giant dildos. That... I was going to say, giant yes. dildos. Okay. I was going to say, a very famous dildoist? That's like, the, well, <laughs> the, the drawings, No. <laughs> He made the drawings of the very muscular gay dude. Yes, okay, that's yes, we have but talked about. But the dildos him. are like this big around yep. 
and that long. Nope. And I just, a train running just, through Ted. Nope. Just running through. And then there's going to be open cuts, and then you can put him in the sewer. And he'll, his cuts will be filled with shit water. Yes. See? And then I want to rub the wounds with lemon. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And fire ants. And fire, bullet just, ants. Also, yeah. yeah. All of the ants. All of the harmful ants. Just, and then probably some sewer gators. And then you know what? I want to give him, uh, let's say, 10 years of <laughs> intensive uh, third world medical treatment. Mm. To get him as close to better as we can, mm-hmm. and then just put that on a loop. Just for just. Yep. Icarus. Yep. <laughs> just forever. <laughs> just perpetual. He's like, here you go, and back into the shit yeah. river. Like the medical treatment you're gonna get is like grossly subpar at best. Yeah. Ooh. Like you know dirty, sti- like used stitches. Yeah. Also, uh, so all of, and his doctor, uh-huh. Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh yeah, <laughs> she's on the fuck because she's doing. she's gonna be like, you know what you need? You need a you jade know, egg up your butthole. Yeah, you know what you need, Ted? Breathe. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a doctor, so here is my nine hundred thousand dollar medical assessment. Uh, take some deep breaths, and here's this water that I made. Just kidding. Guess what? It's full of dysentery. Uh, well, I hope you get fucking Judas cradled. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, I don't you know what that is? Mm-hmm. It's when they would tie you up naked and then slowly lower you onto a razor sharp pyramid. Oh, Jesus fucking fuck. Yeah. Uh, totally different side. Well, fuck Ted. You're fucked. Fuck you, Ted. Fuck yeah. you, Ted. Uh, different side note. Um, sister number two listens yes. to the show. Hi. And sent me. Hermanos. Yes, and sent me. Um, Something about Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, lovely. Oh, so this is kind yeah. of a jang. Yeah. Half a jang. Fucking do do. Just fuck you, Gwyneth Paltrow. Jang adjacent. Uh, reading that Gwyneth Paltrow's clean beauty regime means that she starts every day with a refreshing glass of alkaline water and a spritz of lemon. Oh, I've seen this. Which makes the alkaline water no longer alkaline and highlights the magnificent level of BS that people will swallow from celebrities. Good job, Gwyneth. Enjoy Stop that me. load in your mouth. Enjoy the load in your mouth, Gwyneth. Lord. <laughs> Is that? That's it. Is that the that's, best? That's yeah. It. Yeah, let's get the fuck out of here. All right, dick nipples. Bye. Space nipples. flavors. <laughs> Gross. <laughs>